Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. We'll see you all next week, everybody. Uh, I got to get going. You know, last week I had a tattoo removed. I removed Eric Stoltz from uh, my body. But now we're going to the tattoo parlor because I'm going to get remember Sammy Jenkins somewhere on this body. Maybe on my forearm right here. Well, I'd like to know who you found to remove tattoos. I have this damn fairy tram stamp that I got to get rid of. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> well, to that. To that. Hey, we're going to keep uh, turning things along here next week. You know, we're in a really good Christopher Nolan space, you know, finally doing this, you know, cast that was a long time in, in the making. And, you know, in terms of the summer box office movie season, we've kind of reached a, like a critical mass, uh, this, this week. And, uh, we got to talk about our Oppenheimer, this film scoring off against Barbie. I mean, I think for the summer box office, I think this is a weekend that was dearly needed. Uh, should I say, right? Desperately needed. Yes. Uh, but man, I'm excited to see this film, uh, three hours. It's going to be a bit of a sit, but, uh, from all the trailers have been blowing me away. I've mm-hmm. been reading some reviews here and there, but what do you think? Is this, you know, this was number one on your, you know, uh, box office uh, prediction thing. I didn't even put it on because I was, dude, I put all my stock in the flash, Matt. <laughs> yeah, we both missed that. Dude, no, and, and it, Dial of Destiny. Oh, yeah. like, we both should have put Sound of Freedom, to be honest with you, because oh. it beat Dial, it, it's cleaned house. <laughs> I know, man. <laughs> um, it'll win the summer. Yeah. But, uh, I have to tell you that if Oppenheimer is three hours, that's just a study in the ethos of the man, Mm -hmm. it's going to be a little tough. They've got to find for me Mm -hmm. an active contemporary antagonist on site in Los Alamos. Yeah. And the second thing I was going to ask you, have you gotten to the point with, or, or bring up, mm-hmm. maybe not ask you, Yeah, are you at the point with that film yet where you're ready to pull the plug on trailers because you're worried now about seeing too much of the movie? I know it's three hours, sure, yeah. but seeing too much of the movie in the trailers because I'm at that point. When, I, it come, when it comes to Nolan, I kind of know. Mm-hmm. Like, and I've been like that with every one of his releases. Like when Dark Knight was coming out, I was like, maybe I should stop watching because I'm going to spoil the movie. And I'll give me, I'll watch that fourth trailer 15 times in a row. Yeah. Uh, so it's just like the more content I take it in, but no, I'm with you. I was like, if he can find a, like a captivating way to tell that story, do it in the middle of the summer, make bank hundred million dollar budget. I mean, it's, it's big, but it's not, you know, not three, huge. it's not flash 300 million. Right. Right. I think that could be something pretty special. Something mm-hmm. that we talk about, you know, come award season, uh, how we kind of restructure, you know, the summer movie, not just around like comic book and animated fair, but historical Epics again. Great point. I was just going to bring that up too. <laughs> Maybe this is an entry into interesting nonfiction, yeah. military or otherwise, yeah. that maybe forces people to pull the reins back on not quite so much mm-hmm. large scale science fiction, which has kind of choked us all out. Yeah. You know, I'm, dude, I'm choked out. I'm in the, the six inch puddle of water on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, I, what, what I do appreciate about this idea, and we're, we'll talk a lot about it next week, is I like that he's tapping into uh, based on true story events that I 
same with Dunkirk, right? That I kind of know about, but I kind of also don't know about it yeah. either, right? So right. I'm kind of going in to kind of learn about some of like the clashing and kind of see how that's gonna gonna play. From what I've read, they do highlight his affair in this. Yeah. So we'll see how that plays too. Absolutely. So you got that coming to you next week. Hey, what why do you say we get started with our nightcap? Julian. Yeah. Uh, as we talk about Nolan here for the next uh, three weeks, I think we'll talk a lot about his collaborators and, you know, a lot of the people that he's worked with, you know, multiple times, you know, music's a huge part of that, whether it's Hans Zimmer mm -hmm. or now Ludwig uh, Gronson, who he worked with on Tenant, but David Julian was his original composer and he did Insomnia, The Prestige and his first film following. So that's beautiful. Very ethereal. You know what David Julian's score I really like is The Descent. Uh, the the scary one. Yeah. Oh, there's some terrific music in that. But you know, talking about uh, Memento today, it's got a very interesting fragmented story structure, and I'm sure we're gonna not talk about it at all, right, man? Not at all. <laughs> so it's you know, once you see it this way, and there is kind of on the DVD. Uh, like a hidden special feature to watch it in chronological order, which almost defeats the purpose of what makes this film tick, right? Yeah. So my nightcap question to you is. What are three films that could take on this fragmented storytelling structure that Memento does and still kind of get away with telling a compelling story? You know, this question perplexed me for a while because mm -hmm. I wanted to sort of tackle something that maybe under-delivered and then really dig into the possibilities of bookending the start of the film with the end of the film and then realizing if the story or journey to it was enough to get there. And so I batted around a lot of different films here. And what I finally settled on were not movies that disappointed that maybe I could sour mash by rearranging them in my mind, but just different movies that I think could benefit from this just in totality. And yeah. a couple of these on here are slam dunk winners anyway. Okay. Like this first one. Okay. This is a movie... Three, three, two, two, one, one, or yeah, does it yeah, matter? Okay. Yeah. This is a movie that you and I do not have the same love for, but I can't sit here before you at this mic and say, this is a shitty movie. It's just not my cup of tea. Okay. And I want the version of this. That's the version of this film that I don't think you particularly care for either, but mm -hmm. it's the one that I like more. Okay. Okay. It's Blade Runner. And I want the one where Deckard is a replicant. Okay. And I want that movie told to me the way this film is told. Okay. Start off with the escape from yourself, if you will. Yeah. With your replicant girlfriend whose days are numbered and your days are numbered. Yeah. And then how do we get to coming to this terrible truth mm -hmm. that to be more human than human means to live a shorter life than humans did. And so you better shine very bright. Mm -hmm. What better way to do that would then with the very stable yeah. and not crazy at all, Sean Young in tow. <laughs> <laughs> as you run off. But if this, if that movie yeah. is told that way for me, and mm -hmm. I know you like probably want to throw this bottle at me right okay, now. Okay. I, I could, I, I'd be willing to sit and watch that. That's what I'm going to go blade runner. Good choice. 
Thanks. Uh, uh, you know, when Nolan was talking about, uh, you know, his influences with Robert Downey Jr., you know, all the interviews I'm watching, wink, mm-hmm. wink. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And he kind of just listed the first person that came on the top of his list was actually Ridley Scott. Really? Yeah. He's like, he's like, I just adore his his style of filmmaking. And he's probably talking about a lot of these early films, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> Alien, Blade Runner. See it a little bit. Yeah. And even Gladiator to an extent. I see a little Oppenheimer in uh, Gladiator and Oppenheimer, right? Sure. That grandiose thing. So good. Awesome choice. Thank you. My number three, uh, I'm going Coen Brothers here. Oh, wow. You know, they, sp- they spend a lot of time in that kind of noir space. I know where you're going. I'm going to go Fargo. Oh, that's not where I thought you were going. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, Fargo, huh? I think, you know, that kind of kidnapping plot, you know, with, you know, Steve Buscemi and, uh, uh, what's the other guy's name? Oh, man, no, I can't believe I, m- I messed that up. But, uh, you know, Finding an interesting oh, way. Oh, the, um, the scorpion. The uh, P- Peter St- Stomari. Yeah, Peter Stomari. Yeah. Stromari. Yeah. yeah. To do the kidnapping and then kind of inverse it and kind of talk about the road to get there, right? Yeah. You know, William H. Macy and all that nonsense. And then kind of throw the, the Francis McDormand investigation element into that mm-hmm. kind of interspersed. I think that could work pretty well, actually. I think that's a, a pretty good movie already. Entertaining. Nice, short, and concise uh, that kind of crime film that the Coens are just really good at, uh, not Miller's Crossing, but oh, yeah. <laughs> before I could do it, that was a legendary episode for uh, kind of a come to podcast moment for us, mm-hmm, right? Sure was. <laughs> but yeah, Fargo, my number three. That's a really good choice. Thank I thought you. for sure when you said them, you're going Blood Simple. Because mm. uh, I thought about that one too, but I don't know if that would play backwards. You know why that movie works is because we know more than anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if backwards or sideways would make a difference in that mm. film. Love that choice though. Cool. Didn't Fargo, good, yeah. Yeah. Why did he end up in the wood chipper? About to find out. Yeah. Boy, I have a lot of choices here. Okay, um, okay I'm going to go classic Hollywood here. This is a movie that you and I both like. Okay. But I think we can also argue that one of the things that plagues this director is not always knowing how to come up with the best ending. Hitchcock? You got it. Yeah. It's got to be one of two films. Mm-hmm. Both of these are really good. And I don't know which one I'm going to say until I talk myself into it literally in one second from now because it could work for either one of these. Say it before you forget it, like <sighs> Leonard. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. I think, and I mean, we're talking hollowed all-time greats here. Mm-hmm. I think this technique would work with Vertigo. At the end, we, we start with him looking over the ledge. And in the context of the film, you're like, really? She's dead and you're just standing there but if you remember what the title is if you book in that as the start with how the movie begins which is him nearly falling to his death Mm -hmm. i think it makes a bit more sense yeah but again maybe not and then those films line up you know pretty well at certain parts where the obsession piece comes in right which is you know following uh blonde kim novak and then following Mm -hmm. you know heavy eyebrowed kim novak yeah and just that, that, that day-to-day going to the museum. And that could kind of pair up really nicely, actually. In the movie we watched today, there's a really important moment where color becomes gray and gray becomes color. And that's where the two stories kind of intermeet in sort of an odd way, yeah. kind of. I think that's also present in this film. And it could be the dream sequence with the <laughs> kaleidoscope-like effect as his head is sailing through the air. Yeah. Vertigo, but the I had another one too, but I don't want to say it because it might be yours. Uh, it's it, it's 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 not. Uh, but I'll I'll kind of just mention it now, because uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to make my list. I think Psycho would give you a different pers- that one too. perspective into into that, right? Yep. Instead, you you would probably know Anthony uh, Norman Bates is kind of the killer a little ahead of, ahead of time, but 
that could be a different way to view that particular film. Opening up on him with, I'm not even going to swat that fly. Mm -hmm. They'll know and they'll say, you know, write that whole bit. Yeah, and the other one that I had also... Hang on a second. That, that might work in Hitchcock's favor because <laughs> then we're waiting. We know that mm -hmm. the spider is, you know, waiting to catch a fly mm -hmm. in its web. Yeah. And then it's Marion, right? Let's go watch it spin it. Don't go into the Bates Motel. Yeah, man. Ooh, that, that could be pretty good. Okay, what about the last one is the birds? Mm -hmm. That's kind of a terrible ending. I'll, I We talked about it in like ethereal... I mean, intellectually, we defended why it goes the way that it does. But... Watching that family walk out of the house arm in arm as a fully conjoined mother, father, grandma, daughter unit and the birds don't attack, but yet all of the tension around mm -hmm. then getting it back to how we move to that. Yeah. I, there's a po I think there's some possibilities there too. Um, I mean, that'd be even a heavier think piece, but I like that. Rebecca might work well too. Oh I my mean, gosh. Yes. That movie starts at the end. Oh, wow. And then kind of does like storytelling of like, this is how we got to this burned out mansion, right? I yeah. mean, they could play a little bit more with that and the court case and retelling and the flashbacks and all that. Now you just got me thinking now. Well, those are honorable mentions. Yeah, they're not on my list. I know, keep going. Uh, a two, uh, My number two, a film that I think shares a lot of DNA with this particular film and it came out the year prior, it's Fight Club. Yeah. Mm. Kind of told in that way already with the end and then we go back and tell, but then it's it's fairly linear up until we get the twist and then the conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. But if we're kind of going back and forth and cutting ahead to a Project Mayhem, like like really ahead, ahead of steam, and then we cut back to the Marla Singer stuff, then I think we might paint a, a, a bigger picture. And I, th I still think you could preserve the twist doing it that way as well. Yeah. Maybe just disorient the audience that much more. That's good, man. Mm -hmm. That's really good. I think I'd pay to see that. You might like it a little bit better. <laughs> I might. That's good, Jesse. Yeah, thank you. Number one. Mm -hmm. uh, this fell into the category that I mentioned at the beginning, and this is a movie that I just didn't like. And I think there's good stuff in there, and there's some interesting characters. It's just the pacing and when the events happen sort of happen out of place for me. And the primary showdown between good and bad guy in this film happens maybe barely into the second act. Okay. And then you get... What's a really heavy-handed voiceover at the end of the movie to remind everybody what the film was about? No, it's not Gangs of New York, but it could be. This is instead No Country for Old Men. Mm. I don't need a throwaway scene as one of the main characters is pitched out of the back of a truck with little to no regard yeah. on what happened as this turning point of Act 2. Mm-hmm. That feels really, really out of place and would play better because the conflict that Shakur has with um, Josh Brolin's character, what mm -hmm. the his name? Um, whatever it is in that, mm -hmm. in that film, happens in the first act. Yeah. So I think that's naturally set up for that way. And then the worst part of that film, as an ending piece, is that heavy-handed Tommy Lee Jones little speech that he gives at the tabletop. If that's how you... Llewellyn Moss. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if that starts at the beginning, then it sets a narrative for the film that's like, look, kind of um, Peckinpah, Sam Peckinpah and the Wild Bunch like the West is dying and we're trying to get caught up. So I think that movie is one that I personally, yeah, which I did not like. I think I could find some usable content in that if it was done in the memento style. Yeah, I think it's a pretty troubling film for you. And I think it's the real kind of 
weirdness about it is I think there's a lot of ingredients in there that like should really work for you, right? Yep. Heist, you know, yep. Hitman, Cross Country Chase, everything. The mob, like really well acted. The West, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it just cut, doesn't quite gel to like a satisfying moment for you. But yeah, let's let's switch it up. Let's see if that plays better, right? Mm-hmm. My number one, great choice, by the way. This is a fun list. It is fun, yeah. My number one, I'm stepping on some hollowed, hollowed ground here, but I think it's already a bit of a mind fuck. Mm. But I think if we, you know, mess around with, you know, the title cards and this, I think we could really have some fun with it and maybe make it uh, even more horrifying. Going to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Oh, man, yeah. Yeah. You imagine starting with Jack, Frozen. And oh. kind of working our way to the interview and then just kind of like kind of playing fast and loose with how the rest of the story is told to us. I think the mystery of what's going on would be even more vague, right? But I think even more horrific at, at certain points, less kind of reasoning as to why things are happening. You say that and you know where I automatically go? Mm. Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. The yeah. writer that's dead at the beginning. Do we find out how he ended up yeah. dead? Where well, there I am, dead in the pool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that would be fine. Like that wouldn't. <laughs> Someone's gonna see your version of that and say that's just too weird. Now, yeah. no way. It's not weird enough. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really good. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see that too. Let's recut them. Let's yeah. Let's take that. Dude. That's hours of work to just recut these movies. But hey, I might, might want to check it out. Yeah. Who was it? Someone. Was it Soderbergh? Did a version of Star Wars, or maybe I'm thinking of a different movie. I think it's A New Hope. Or no, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark mm. in black and white. Oh. And it just plays like really excellent because it does look even more and has that uh, feel and tone of those old 1940s cliffhanger serials, right? That's terrific. It's just an experiment he did just to see if he could get a little bit more from an already perfect movie. And I might try it. I might drain the color from my TV and try Raiders like that one day. Mm, That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Well, excellent. To your list. To your list. Let's see those movies in our uh, blockbuster heaven, right? Mm -hmm. But we got a ton to talk about today, so why don't we dive headfirst into our review breakdown of Memento. Amnesia. No, 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 no. It's different from that. I have no short-term memory. I know who I am. I know all about myself. I just, since my injury, I can't make new memories. Everything fades. If we talk for too long, I'll forget how we started. And next time I see you, I'm not going to remember this conversation. <laughs> I don't even know if I've mentioned before. So if I seem a little strange or rude or something, uh, I've told you this before, haven't I? Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to mess with you, but it's, it's just so weird. so weird. You don't remember me at all. No. We've talked a bunch of times. I'm sure we have. <laughs> well, what's the last thing you remember? My wife. What's it like? It's like waking. It's like you just woke up. That must suck. Mm. It's all backwards. I mean, like, maybe you get an idea about what you want to do next, but you don't remember what you just did. I mean, I'm exactly the opposite. Uh, how long have I been staying here? A couple of days. And you're holding my calls? Like you said. Okay. But this guy's an exception. You know this guy? Yeah, it's your friend, right? What makes you think he's my friend? I just saw you together, that's all. He's not my friend. Okay. If he calls or if he shows up here, you give me a call in my room, okay? What, his name's Teddy? Teddy, yeah. All right. Look, 
Look, I hope my condition is not going to be a problem for you. No, not as long as you uh, remember to pay the bill. I want to give it to you right now because that's the perfect sound to start this with. Good job on that. Absolutely. That's I. I that's perfect, Jesse. Yeah. There's 50 things I want to talk about right now. But wait. Can't do it. Yeah. How are you going to rate and grade Memento? We have Rock Gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Can I actually go first this week? Absolutely. Uh you know, you know, we've talked a lot about Christopher Nolan off mic, on mic. You know, I'm just really thankful. And it's a privilege to finally be able to do a cast built. He's my favorite working filmmaker for a multitude of different reasons. Yeah. Uh, but for this particular film, I got to go single barrel. There's very few films that I think have been made like this. Yeah. And, you know, what I appreciate most about his style of filmmaking, whether frustrating or infuriating to most audiences, and, you know, we had a hell of a time talking about Tenant and trying to really piece together, and you remember our diagram, and I think we made some headway on that, right? Uh, I love that he doesn't feel obligated to dumb down the material or slow down for the audience. It's just kind of at 60 the entire time you either get on or you get off. And I think that's why his films warrant multiple viewings. And he's the only filmmaker I can think of. John Carpenter doesn't even fit into this camp where his each one of his films, the more I watch it, the more I pick up on, they get better, each one of them, in, in, in different strange ways. Mm. So Memento is probably maybe the film of his, uh, maybe his first film following, the film I've seen the least just because I know it's a lot of work uh, to dive into this very seedy, noirish uh, headspace, right? But uh, yeah, I got to go single barrel. If we're not counting following, this is one of the all-time great film debuts from a, from a director. Uh, yeah, And you can kind of see the seedlings of what he plants here echoing throughout The Dark Knight, Inception, Dunkirk, and so on and so forth. What about you? Good choice. I'm going to share the same rating with you. I think oftentimes in the show, Top Shelf takes the predominant seat at the head of the table as the greatest there is. But I do think there is some space for single barrel, which is, you, in my, in my opinion, wildly unique and unlike anything else, mm-hmm. to supersede a Top Shelf rating as maybe superior. Mm-hmm. And in this particular case, I can't go Top Shelf Plus because that just feels like all of the other Top Shelf Pluses that I've ever given out. Yeah. There's not another film I've ever seen that's like this. Yeah. This film made me want to study film harder. Yeah. Because to edit, cut, splice, build, confuse, and then colorize the story the way this is, you have to be such a master of what the beats and events in your own story are And that is an arduous amount of work in character study. And it's easy if you have a really simple plot plot like outsider from faraway city moves into country town and leads the little never win a game country team to the state championship. That's a really easy story to tell. This is not. This is rife with lots of twists and turns and introductions in a very noir-like way. Lots of new characters, but in a backwards fashion. Mm -hmm. And the most important character that we meet is killed in the beginning of the story, and we don't, well, one of them. 
but doesn't really show up until the end of the story per runtime. Yeah. What I'm saying is it's an amazing story that checks all of the film noir boxes, which everybody knows listens to the show often is right up my alley as my favorite genre or in contention. Mm -hmm. And then to take it and flip it around and do what regular film noir often doesn't do Mm -hmm. in its A to Z linear storytelling. And that's remember there's actually a story that you have to keep in mind that, that fits all the pieces. Yeah. It is single barrel with a bullet. There's one bottle of this that's ever been made. You're lucky if you ever get a sip of it to your lips. This is Pappy Van Winkle Plus. Yeah. It's a it's it's an immaculate, perfect film. Can you imagine if this comes out in the 1940s and oh my dude, dude, heads are exploding? Yeah. I'm like scanner style in mm-hmm, the theater. Mm-hmm. They, they they can't comprehend something like this at that time. Yeah. Uh and this also feels like the like ultimate resolution of all the indie filmmaking of the early nineties, right? Yeah. Everything that Soderbergh was, was doing. And Darren Aronofsky with like Pi mm-hmm. and uh, Tarantino. Like there's, I, I feel a lot of Reservoir Dogs in this particular sure. film too, right? Uh, this kind of feel feels like the the cherry on top. And now all those guys are getting big projects now, right? Mm-hmm. It's like we found the new filmmakers. Let's see what they can do with Batman. Let's see what they can do with an Ocean's Eleven remake, right? Let, let's like really test these guys now. Kill Bill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's. I think yeah, you're spot on with, with with the rating of the film, and yeah, I challenge someone to find s- another kind of semi de- debut that you know pushes the envelope in such a low budget space, right? Mm-hmm. I think nine million dollars on the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that, who's the master distiller on Memento? Whoever the editor of this film is, I can give you that I right now you'd have that. because it's. Uh, she did only the first uh, two films, this one and uh, Insomnia. The, the sorry, films two and three. It's uh, Dodie Dorn. There you go. That's who the that's who is the master distiller on yeah, this. Fantastic editing job. Guy Pierce is. There's lots of really good performances. We'll get into that as we get into the show about what happened and why it never materialized and such. But and maybe even the same case for her. Yeah. How long did she have to sit here and study? And yeah. maybe she had the benefit mm-hmm. of watching it shot in sequential order. Mm-hmm. Okay. So maybe it might be probably easier to do it that way. But regardless, even if you have a perfectly crafted story, A to Z to know that you need to start with X and then immediately go to C and somehow don't forget Y and A at the same time mm-hmm. to her. Yeah. She was nominated. Uh, no, 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 she wasn't actually. That's an absolute. No, no, yeah, you know, she was, she was okay. my bad, my bad. The screenplay and uh, editing were nominated. Good. They didn't win though. No. <laughs> Come on, I know. Academy. Two thousand. Well, I wonder what won that year. Yeah, I could. I could probably look it I'll up. Look. But I can't believe I'm going to say this. This has never happened in the history of this podcast. I don't think it'll happen post this podcast. I got to go. Joey Pants. Joe Pantoliano. Mm-hmm. This is an amazingly good supporting performance mm-hmm. as antagonist, antihero, exposition guy, mm-hmm. nefarious gray area sinister mustache undercover cop god i love his look his like receding hair glasses mustache mm-hmm. or my fucking keys letting vinyl jacket <laughs> I love or it. nylon jacket i love all of it and as we kind of get into like how his character fits in is he telling the truth is he leading him astray there's a lot of gray and interpretation left up and i'm curious to see where you fall in that camp but yeah He's fantastic in this movie. And I think he's had a really good career, whether it's uh, The Matrix, The Goonies, 
uh, Baby's Day Out. Bound. <laughs> yeah, Bound, The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. Fantastic little character acting career. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the highlights of this film is it's a lot of interesting actors that never quite got their like time in the sun, right? Never quite got there. Yeah. Curious to see what you have for this one, but what's your... Oh, my God! Moment of memento. Watching him execute Joey Pants, Teddy, and then the way it's delivered the first time in the the scene, which is no backwards. Mm -hmm. On! That moment, like, he just fucking killed his friend. Yeah. It's a hell of a way to start a movie. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, With a headshot, not, I mean, just cold blasted him in the head. Mine, and we'll talk about it here in just uh, in just a little bit, but uh, it's when he punches Natalie mm-hmm. is when she really tries to push his buttons and we see her kind of work in her angle, right? Which mm-hmm. is, what can you do for me? And then the way she spins that around so quickly and it was just like, what do you think, Dodd? Dodd fucking hit me. Dodd did it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we see that happen after. And it's like, oh, no, Leonard did it, right? Yeah. But he has no memory recollection of that incident whatsoever. She's tapped into how his mind works and is going to use it to her advantage. Mm-hmm. It's pretty sinister. Very. Uh, what's your favorite tasting note, uh, scene, sequence, moment of Memento? Oh, boy. Um, one of the things that really sort of spun me out in this film that, that left me wickedly uncomfortable, and if I hadn't already realized it at the time, that sat me down hard with this film's really gritty. It's when he shows up at Ferdy's bar mm. and they get the communal spit beer that he just drinks so willingly. That other guy. Repugnant. That Bob Hoskins guy over there. <laughs> you know, Stinky Pete costs a loogie into the... And he's waiting for him to drink that beer. <laughs> and the way that she, in that nasty way, lets that just like flim globber just sort of slide down. Just You can tell it just absolutely testing this guy and through the power of modern cinema and, and he nice d- cut and he just down the hatch he does take a drink right before she's like oh let me this get one's you, dusty let me get you a different beer <laughs> yeah um what about you i think i am going to pick and it, it's kind of a moment of comedy and i think the comedy kind of plays interestingly well in a dark way it's when he's chasing Dodd or Dodd's chasing him, right? I love how it starts of like Dodd pulls a gun on him in the car and he just kind of looks ahead and drives away and they chase each other and then he tries to beat it to his hotel room and he gets the number wrong because it's upside down. Dude, he kicks this guy. He probably do. He gives this guy short-term amnesia. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Jesus, fuck. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Nolan's really good. Like one of the knocks against him was like, well, his films aren't funny. It's like, well, he's not doing yucks like The Hangover 2 last week, right? But, like, I think his comedy works really good in kind of a sarcastic, wink-wink, wry smile kind of way. Yeah. Like, think of the moment in uh, Inception when Joseph Gordon-Levitt's shooting at, like, some guy and Tom Hardy's like, you have to dream a little bigger, darling, and pulls out this, like, grenade launcher. Yeah. Like, that's yeah the type of Nolan comedy, right? This kind of wink-wink comedy. Yeah. Uh, and I think it works really well in this pretty grim film, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, this is a pretty morose film, and it's peppered with some, in- oh, he, I'm not chasing him, he's chasing me. Right. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I think, you know, this is an already complicated film to talk about, uh, so I, we'll just kind of make the decision right now, and then we'll we'll end up in the same spot. Yeah. Let's talk about the color sequences first. So how the film starts out and then we'll kind of work our way and then we'll cover the other part of the film later. But 
Matt, take yourself back to 2000. You're seeing this film in the theaters. Uh, we're starting with the Polaroid camera uh, uh, photo as he's kind of shaking it to create an image. And then we see this guy's head like re-go back into itself and then the bullet go back into the gun. Very tenant-like, right? Mm-hmm. What are you thinking? You're like, what type of movie am I about to watch here? Is this a time travel movie? Like, like what, what am I uh, buckling myself up for? I knew the basic premise of the story because I had read about what the story was, this guy trying to figure out who killed his wife, but I had no idea how we were going to go about getting there. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know what I was in for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I expected sort of a kind of a heisty crime. I didn't even think noir initially, but when that, the shell casing goes back into the chamber of the gun after Teddy screams on no backwards. And you're watching that really stone cold look on Lenny's face as he just sort of stares down. Um, my thoughts were, is this a dream? Are we in some sort of butterfly effect like reality? Cause I know bullet casings don't go that way. Yeah. I didn't know what I was in for, but it was hard not to be wickedly intrigued. And to this movie's credit, for as hard as you have to work to pay attention and get this film, you have to have a moment at the beginning that absolutely punches you in the jaw so that you don't check out in the first five minutes. Like often you might do is you, do I need to get some more butter on this popcorn or shoot, I need some napkins or do I need to go to the bathroom or whatever it might be that comes into our mind from time to time watching the film. This movie was guns blazing, buckle up. And it had to be because if you check out early, you might, like, maybe an hour in, you might be able to find two minutes to go to the bathroom or something. But if you, maybe, if you bail five minutes in, you, this movie's over for you for the next hour and 52 minutes. Oh, yeah. You're done. Yeah. So, to their credit, looking back on it now, 20, Jesus Christ, three years later, yeah, it's a really recognizable piece of storytelling excellence in what is a very uncommon way to tell a story. I'm going to tell you... A to Z, but Z to A, but I'm going to tell you Z to A in X, Y, Z. R-S-T-U. You're like, I'm going to tell you in circulars forward, but I'm going to tell you in circulars forward. I'm going to tell you circularly forward backwards, bookended by how I'm going to finish in between to chapter it. What? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, my raisin nets are on the floor. Dude, you you bend down to pick those up. You're screwed. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's a younger version of, of film knowledge for me. Yeah. And this movie was really important. There are certain films in my lexicon of films that are really important. We've talked about some of them. This is one of them. Yeah. Because it really challenged the notion at the time of beat A to beat B to beat C to page one to page two to page three to page four, like linear storytelling. Mm-hmm. It's not always the case. Yeah, not this time. How about you? Well, I saw this film very late in his filmography. I think Batman Begins was first. And when we eventually do the Dark Knight trilogy, I think we'll have some monumental discussions on how that affected me. You know, I, I kind of came to this decision. You know, I'm doing this whole Nolan rewatch to prepare for Oppenheimer. And, you know, when I saw Dark Knight in July 18th of 2008 at midnight, you know, I think we're all granted one, one, one film we see in the theaters, not at home on disc or VHS or streaming. One film that we see in the theater that totally changes how we view and perceive movies. I don't know if you could come up with yours at the, off the top of your head without, you know, some thought. But like, I, I think The Dark Knight is, is mine. I was like, this can be blockbuster entertainment. It can be, 
you know, well thought out layered crime heist film. Uh, and mm-hmm. that was a moment for me. So anyway, this is a long way to get to that answer. So it was Batman Begins, The Prestige, Dark Knight, and then I think Insomnia, and then I think this one. And this is also the only Nolan film I don't own physically. Did we not burn this in my class? We had to. Have. I think I graduated by the time you burned it. Like, was it 2000s? Dude, I was out of there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think I missed out on that one. But yeah, this is pretty late in the viewing. And yeah, I, I think I kind of knew what I was in for. I, I think I knew this was a guy that likes to play fast and loose with the rules of structure. And so, but yeah, once it starts jumping, I was like, yo, I need to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And it, it sucks you in pretty quickly, I think. It starts with the murder, works its way backwards. Then you see that soundbite that I played there, which him talking to dude, fourth build Mark Boone Jr. Yeah. <laughs> uh, saying, oh, yeah, we've had this conversation. I'm just screwing with you. Like, as long as you pay the money. And he, he's a little sinister, too. You don't know if he's trying to take advantage of this guy who's oh has this handicap, right? Uh, this, you know, this mental issue going on, this brain injury. Uh and then when, yeah, Lenny, and then we piece the next scene. And then once you figure out that structure, mm-hmm. you realize, okay, the next time we see a color bit, it's going to take us up to the, up to that moment where it last ended. Right. Yep. So then we get to see them go to some derelict RoboCop factory where he takes him in and does him in because he has a Polaroid in there. that says, don't believe his lies. He's the one that did it. Kill him. Kill him. Yeah. How long? Sorry. How long is the time span of Leonard's remembrance? 20 you know, minutes? 15 I, minutes? Okay. 20 minutes? Less. The Natalie incident happens in like 65 seconds. Minutes. And by minutes, I mean under five. Mm-hmm. And that's that's granting you some leeway. Yeah. But it poses an interesting question. I have two things on this. One is, if everybody in this film is on the make, and everybody in this film is on the make... Mm-hmm. Lenny's above it? Yeah. No, Lenny's on the make because Lenny's Sandy Jenkins. So Lenny is Sammy Jenkins. Yeah. The secondary question then is, if Lenny is not as he is delivered to us in reality, because when we see this bit, we talked about <laughs> shooting Teddy, bullet shell casing back in the chamber, we naturally believe the good guy got the bad guy. Yeah. When you look at it though, you kind of look like, man, tattooed, shirtless weirdo. I guess no, he doesn't have a shirt on. Tattooed, weird guy. Just executed this dude in cold blood who looks like kind of a dork. Yeah. Ooh, I, maybe my my generalizations on who should look like what and what roles I assign to them based on that might be a bit off here. Mm-hmm. And then when you get the sound that you played there at the beginning where he's telling Mark Boone Jr., how I told you about my condition and Mark Boone Jr. tries to engage him in a discussion about, man, that must suck. You realize in that moment, Teddy's a fucking prick Yeah. because here's Teddy's deal, Jesse. Yeah. Anybody that he runs into, he lays this heavy rap on him about this condition and Sammy Jenkins and blah, 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 which has just got to be exhausting. Mm -hmm. And Lenny even, or Teddy even makes fun of him. That's Joey pants. Everybody. Mm -hmm. Teddy makes fun of him. It gets, it's, Story I've heard a million times gets better. It gets better every time you tell it. So his shtick is, Lenny's shtick is, you've got to listen to my condition to come to a place of understanding and empathy and pity for me. But yet when Mark Boone Jr. 
tries to play along, he's a dismissive prick to him. Yeah. And he's a dismissive prick to all of these people in this. Yeah, later. Whether you're the hooker yeah. or whether you're Natalie or whether you're Teddy. Mm-hmm. Leonard, Leonard is an asshole in this film. Yeah. Not to his knowledge, though, right? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. If, see, that's that's the other point I'm getting to. Yeah. If the, if the shtick in this is, I can't make new memories. Yeah. After my wife's death. Mm-hmm. And that's a very nebulous moment. Yeah. The way he contends is, as he remembers her perceived death, which we're going to find out later or earlier, mm-hmm. isn't really what happened. He can't make any new memories. How do you remember to write anything down? Mm-hmm. How do you remember to check your coat pocket? Yeah. How do you remember where the map is in the in the suitcase that you put on the wall? It's all bullshit. Yeah. How do you know where your car keys are? Yeah. Do you lose your phone ever? Yeah. <laughs> or like misplace it? Yeah, where's it at? Yeah. I do too. Mm-hmm. So think about that. And then the circumstantial oddities that would have to occur in order for just you to go to 7-Eleven. Yeah. I don't buy a thing. And especially after this viewing, I don't buy a thing that Lenny's selling this movie other than he's trying to overcome regret. Sure. Because he let his wife get fucked. Yeah. And no, really. I mean, that's yeah. literally it. And killed. By someone else. And killed and then... But he killed her. Yeah. Now, I do want to know this, because you did say Leonard is Sammy Jankis. Yes. But one way to kind of look at it also is, you know, if this is a well-thought-out story and mm-hmm. it goes back to the story, and we'll get to it a little bit with the black and white bit, which is as an insurance, you know, yeah. adjuster, investigator, whatever. Um, You know, he can't form new memories in the short term. Right. But everything prior to the incident, he does remember. So... I think a lot of that might be real, actually, with the the Sammy Jenkins bit, and he did really meet this guy. Oh no, there uh, there's really a Sammy Jenkins. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, yeah, but you know, Teddy at uh, at the end of this is like, no, like you tell that story, you tell it to everybody, right? Uh, His wife just, had diabetes. Sammy didn't even have a wife. Yeah, and I think he's just. I think in that instance, I think he's fucking with him just to keep this ruse going. Cause they got some mm. sort of weird racket going on where they're going town to town, taking out John G's to the financial gain of Teddy's pocket. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I don't even know what Teddy's real job is. He claims he's a cop, but I don't even know if we can believe that really. Uh, he could just be a con man. Like I, I really don't know. And the film doesn't give us an answer, but this is why I really like Nolan. Right. Yeah. You came up with one thing. We're like, well, he's Sammy Jenkins and then it's this way and he lives this reality. And this is the story that he made up and fabricated. But, and then in one way it's like, well, no, he really had that. And then everything else is like manipulating him along the way that way. I think you can read it both ways. Actually. Absolutely. Yeah. Where I come to my point is there's two moments that happen in the storytelling that are not the remember piece Mm -hmm. that Leonard tells people from the hotel room in that plaid flannel shirt on Mm -hmm. the phone in black and white. It's his wife laying on the floor covered in the shower curtain and you see her eye blink and you see her breathe. Mm -hmm. And the other moment is when Sammy Jenkins is in whatever nursing home or or care facility that he's in Mm -hmm. and the nurse walks by and on the front side of the nurse, so before the nurse passes, it's Sammy Jenkins but as the nurse goes by, it's Leonard. Yeah. So it's pretty hard to believe anybody in this because truth is pretty fluid mm-hmm. and manipulated. Let's save some of that because I think there's some good stuff in the Sammy Jenkins timeline about like, oh, dude, kill my, kill me because I can't live in this existence and murder my wife, right? Mm-hmm. With mm-hmm. insulin. Yeah. 
Uh, but with so he kills Joe Joe Pantoliano. Oh yeah, we're back to that. Yeah, we 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 walk back, you know, a little bit, and then we walk back to the next bit, which is you know he finds, you know, Natalie left him a note written on something, whatever. Meet me at one o'clock, right? So he happens to be in the pocket on like a, a bar coaster. Yeah. This would be so frustrating to live oh. life like this. Oh. Dude, yeah. Just, I think I think I'm ending it. Yeah. I can't go short term like this. Dude, how could you like really enjoy anything? You couldn't have a really decent relationship with literally no one, you know, whether it's uh with you know the opposite sex or you know, with you know, friends or you know, I don't even know how you'd watch a football game and you'd just be like, ah, what's this going on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, exactly. You wouldn't know oh, we're in the first quarter again. Oh no, it's the fourth. <laughs> like you would be so it'd be so frustrating. So he goes and meets her, and let's talk about her a little bit because, you know, we're talking a lot about noir. You know, this is a little bit of our femme fatale character of this film, Carrie Ann Moss, fresh off the Matrix. Yeah, Natalie. What do you you think of her in this film? What do you think of this character? I was certain she was destined for stardom. Mm Mm-hmm. After the Matrix and dude, then I thought, appearance. I thought, dude, her and Guy Pierce, right? Both of them, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, it's only a matter of time till this chick is everywhere. Yeah. Little did we know that wasn't going to materialize for either one of them. Mm-hmm. I think she's fantastic. She's a great villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's got a very sinister look to her, just naturally with the, the kind of pale skin and the dark hair. Uh, she's able to play, I think, big on screen because I think she's a rather tall woman. And she just seems imposing because what she shows right away when he arrives to Ferdy's bar is the oh my God moment that we spoke about, mine particularly. And that's, I'm going to put your memory issue to test, buddy. Let's see. And not by, did I shortchange you? Or could you remember the punchline to the joke that I just told you five minutes ago? Or what's my name again? Oh, no, 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 no. Far, far, far beyond that. We're all going to spit in this beer. You're going to be part of the people that spit in this beer. And if you really have the memory issue that you have, you won't remember what's been put in the beer and you'll drink it. And we're going to test you. Think about how loaded that is, Jesse. Of all the things she could do, that's the disgusting test she comes up with. And not only is that, but then she actually lets him do it for a moment. And then you get, I think, what's also a really important moment that I think plays well with all of these characters in this film that have the seedy underbelly or feet of clay. She realizes just how wicked, with the exception of Lenny, he doesn't ever come to that. She realizes just how wicked she's being, and she removes that dirtied beer from the side of the from the counter in front of him yeah. and gives him a fresh, non-spit and clean beer. Yeah. Carrie Ann Moss mm-hmm. was the aughts version of what should have been the greatest femme fatale that ever set foot on, including Stanwyck. Because mm-hmm. they could push the envelope more in 2000 than they could in, in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. Just didn't come together. Yeah. But I loved her. You know, and we all knew her as um, Trinity. That's the problem. She got stuck in all those Matrix movies. And it, it washed her out. Yeah, two and three were just awful. Awful. Yeah. And then Guy Pierce, just while we're just on that subject of what could have been. Time machine after this, right? The Count of Monte Cristo and the time machine, dude. You just like you just did not pick the right projects, right? Interesting that he would too choose I didn't even think about it that way, but why would you choose two classic pieces of literature that have been made multiple times? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. No, I think she's an interesting character. By Alexander and- Dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> William Sadler. Love mm-hmm. it. Uh, it's, it's hard to kind of pinpoint like what she is and 
what her intentions are. And, you know, the Polaroid of her says, you know, she will help you out, you know, for her own benefit. She lost someone as well. Yeah. Uh, and when they're sitting here in the restaurant and she's like, tell me about your wife. You are like, no, Leonard, like really tell me about your wife. Like, what does she care? What is she getting out of that? Like what's satisfying about that for her? Like, it's almost like she's kind of getting off on this ruse, right? Of just like playing this man, having him go through his stuff and like, shit, this guy really can't remember anything. So I got to ask you, yeah. do the two of them consummate the I, relationship? And what do you think? I don't think so. It's because I do. Wait, why do you go to bed in your slacks? Unless you put him back on, but you wouldn't remember to put him back on. Yeah. It's and real I, I hard mean, though, because when she takes, you know what part always makes me think she, yeah. these two are getting down. Yeah. When she unbuttons his shirt and pulls it down around his shoulders. Oh, yeah, that's very sexy. And she's touching his stomach. And and then they kiss. Yeah, but there's nothing sexier about wearing your chinos to bed. I mean, <laughs> they're like, wait, and post, she's fully clothed, too. Yeah, post-coitus. I mean, just lay there naked, I guess, and wake up in the morning and then dress. Who are you? So that's really strange, right? Okay, like, because the reason I ask yeah. is in the scene at the diner... Mm-hmm that you're talking about, which is tell me about your wife. That's mm-hmm. after she's kind of let down her guard and she seems rather pissed yeah. that he shows up and doesn't recognize her. Yeah. Almost like, Hey buddy, what happened on Tuesday night? And I haven't heard from you in four days. Why didn't you call me? Mm. Mm. That all this scene that we're in right now also seems like the last time these two are going to see each other as well. Thank God for her. Mm-hmm. You'd probably kill her. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I could go either way on, I know, on, I, I, on I go that. I go back one. and forth too. Yeah. Uh, I guess we're kind of at that. So, you know, he does run run into jo- Joey Pants again, and he kind of furthers this narrative of like, dude, we're hunting the John G's. Like, he, like we got to find your wife's killer and this and that. And you're like, what's this guy? Like, it's interesting how like that's so much later in the story, but it's very ill-defined. Yeah. And the farther we get to the beginning of the story, that makes more sense. Yeah. How he's playing him and he's essentially the puppet master, mm-hmm. right? feeding his this story and making sure he remembers these aspects because we'll get to the black and white. I mean, the, that's a pretty important piece of the film, which catches up to this part of the story. But we do get to the, that moment, you know, when he does stay over uh, at her place and he has a really uh, interesting conversation. I, I do believe I had the audio for it. If I could just reach over and touch her side of the bed. I would know that it was cold. But I can't. I know I can't have her back. But I don't want to wake up in the morning thinking she's still here. I lie here not knowing how long I've been alone. There was a, a review for Oppenheimer where uh, one of the critics or something was saying like, and then Nolan does something with time again. And one of the people commented on it and was like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> like At this point, you know, this is something he does like to, to talk about, whether as a, a framing mechanism or as a storytelling mechanism or as a thematic mechanism. We saw it in Tenant literally mm-hmm. as it's moving backwards and forwards. Yeah. 
Inception's all about time mm-hmm. within a dreamscape. Uh, when he says something like that, he was like, you know, if I just, how can I feel without feeling and then feeling through time? Yeah. What do you think about that? It's tough because if you can't measure time, you can't compare how you were to where you are. Mm-hmm. You're just in purgatory. It's hell. It does give some plausible, rational arguments as to why Lenny goes the course that he does. We don't know how many people Lenny's killed, Jesse. Oh, yeah. It could be 50? Sure. (laughs) Up and down the West Coast. Anybody that's a James G is possible fodder for this guy. Yeah, and Teddy's told them, tells him later, oh, you get your half. He ain't getting shit. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, think about when you're just sick. Mm Mm-hmm. And on Tuesday, you feel terrible. And on Wednesday, it's even worse. But then Thursday is better than Wednesday, but not quite as good as Tuesday. And Friday is better than Tuesday. And all you're doing is comparing time. But you have to have markers that you can remember in order to do so. Well, the result of that is you heal, you get better. Now, take something that's far greater than like a sickness, which would be the death of a loved one. Days go by, weeks go by. Years go by, possibly, Mm -hmm. and they all feel just as raw as the initial realization that she's no longer with you because you can't mark time. And so what he ends up doing because he can't mark time is he ends up passing time Mm -hmm. on this never-ending quest that just goes from silly-ass tattoo to next loose end to next loose end. Let's talk about the tattoos. Sad, isn't it? Uh, very sad. Yeah, it's and frustrating. I mean, to oh just God. put put yourself in his shoes. I mean, it would just it, you couldn't think of a worse existence. No. But what do you think of the tat- the tattoos as kind of like a remembrance icon? And like, I don't know. We never see when he puts the first one on, but this has kind of become his thing to like. Well, put it on your body that way; it never washes away. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not a note that's going to get tossed in the trash or a photo that'll get burned. You know, this is on you, and he has little kind of intricate things kind of placed all over. I had never seen anything quite like that, right? What do you what do you think of that as kind of like a mechanism to? It's it's like photography in a way. It's genius, his story, mm-hmm. and it makes sense for him. If you're going to keep like a notebook full of yellow post its, those are going to get folded and they're going to blow away, and yeah. stickum's going to dry up, and you're going to lose them. If you put it on your body, then that's fine. But here's the problem. There's only so much canvas you can use, right? Because eventually your body runs out of tattoos. Mm -hmm. And as you go through and you look at this jigsawed, memoried, essentially memoir of tragedy that you've used your body as the canvas to paint upon, Mm -hmm. you start running out of room. And where do you begin the tale of looking at it? Because clue one, two, three, four, five, and six might give you a progression to follow. But by the time you get to six... Do you even remember what one was? Yeah. And then by the time you get to four, do you even remember what other tattoos you've read? You cannot remember any of it. So it becomes essentially this cross that he martyrs himself on. It's torture. Yeah. And we'll probably get into this later, but I have my own theory as to why he's torturing himself so much. And it gives some real cause for, is this all just made up? And did he really even ever like his wife anyway? Well, there is that scene where he's just like, don't be a prick. The fuck are you reading? <laughs> You're right. That's the only interaction. Well, 
the only verbal interaction the two of them. It's not pleasant. Yeah. It's, I don't think that's a loving relationship. No, no, no yeah. But I don't I, think he ever liked her, but we'll get to that later, yeah. I think. So yes. I don't know. What do you think about that? What do you think of the, the, I, the I, body beautiful? I love it. It's just, it's the, the, like the imagery you remember from this film. It's on the poster. It's on the DVD. It's just like him, Guy Pierce all tatted up and just like, well, what does that mean? Well, it's a roadmap to, of, of remembrance. And he essentially just goes around in a circle, right? And Teddy's the guy just kind of spinning that yarn along, right? And, you know, John G. raped and murdered your wife. Remember Sammy Jankis, uh, license plates on your thighs, this uh, over here. Like, it's all just fragments of a shattered mind. And yeah, I think it's great how the audience gets to kind of come in on that as he's making them and he goes and gets new ones and how he characters discover where they're at what the hell does that mean john g natalie oh i'll find your john g i, I know someone at the motor vehicle we do find out you know that's it, she finds a john g it's teddy and then we can kind of talk about maybe his role in the thing because the film also tries to play a narrative where like he killed his wife right <laughs> i want to ask you a question yeah before we get into the teddy bit because that's that's a, a long one let's go back to natalie for just a second okay. when she's stripping him down and talking about all those freaky tattoos that he has mm-hmm. she puts her hand i believe it's on his left breast and says what about right here mm-hmm. and he says i don't know maybe i'll save that for later yeah flash forward to later in runtime on the screen we get a quick glimpse of leonard and his wife in bed mm-hmm. he's shirtless and she's laying on his chest much the same way natalie fell asleep on his chest mm-hmm when right right at the same point that I was talking about, which he kind of strips him down. Do you ever look what's on his chest there? Mm. He has a tattoo right underneath her head and it says, I did it. Now, Natalie asks him, what about here? Mm -hmm. And he says, I'm going to save that. Does she mean what about here? Because it's blank or what about here? Because something's been removed. Like that's a loaded line for the image that we see. When Mrs. Leonard, she she just called Leonard's wife. She doesn't even have a name. Mrs. Shelby, yeah. When Mrs. Shelby is laying on him, Mm -hmm. you can see that same breast that Natalie pointed to, and it's clear as the day. Mm. I did it. Mm. Interesting. I got to go back and watch Romento again, (laughs) right? (laughs) No, you just pick up on those little things, right? It's just, Every time I watch this movie, there's something else I pick up that just makes the plot that much more confusing. And I love it for that. Because what's interesting here, too, is like this whole bit with Dodd, right? I mean, he wakes up the next scene in the hotel room, and he's like, oh, gosh, I woke up. Like, where the hell am I? Who am I? Like, what is going on? And then, like, here's this, like, muffled screaming as this guy tied up in his closet. Like, dude, what the hell happened here? Yeah. And Teddy comes and is like, Jesus Christ. Like, he's like, what are you doing here? And then they let this guy go. Yeah. Uh, they drive him outside of town. They tell him to get get out of here and... Dude, he's probably coming back for Natalie later, right? You know, I don't know. They think our days are number two. And, you know, I've never really been able to fully put the dot together. Is it just a rival game, no, rival no, drug guy? No, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, he's. Or supplier to to Jimmy Grant's? Yeah, I think so. it's something regarding that plot, right? Is like, he he's mad. He's like, he wants to kind of know where the money is, right? You probably should tell people, if you have not watched this film and you're trying to list this podcast, oh God, you're, just, you're burying yourself. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just- Stop it. now and go watch the film first. <laughs> sure, yeah. 
Because we're about to start talking about Jimmy Grant, so you're going to be like, who the hell is Jimmy Grant? <laughs> That's another Jimmy G. You're right. It's oh, another yeah. Jimmy G. I think, yeah, he's he's a drug guy, right? And yeah, I, think, gotta be. I think he wants the money, right? The 200K mm-hmm. that he, I think, is taking in the deal with with Jimmy Grant's in exchange drugs for money. I think that's what it is. That Teddy has orchestrated. Right. Yeah. Woo, good luck figuring that out if you haven't seen this movie, (laughs) backwards or forwards. Can I say I love that 200K (laughs) seems like a really believable memento amount. Absolutely. It's not like $20 million in the back of of this car. It feels noirish appropriate. Even the Jaguar that he drives is almost more Miata than it is Jaguar. Yeah. That's so true, yeah. And then we get into, like, yeah, it's even, it's beat up. It kind of. It looks like hell. So we get into this, what I mentioned, you know, earlier being kind of like, you know, one of my favorite scenes, which is he's kind of in a chase, you know, with this guy. Like, like, where am I? Like, oh, I'm chasing this guy. Oh, no, he's chasing chasing me, me. and he's shooting him, and he's, it's a really great sequence that leads him to, you know, this hotel, uh, Dodd's Hotel, where he knocks out this other guy because he has the wrong room number, but then finds his room and, you know, goes in. He's going to ambush him, right? He's waiting in the bathroom with a bottle of Jim Beam, I think, right? Yeah. And in (laughs) the middle of sitting on the toilet, uh, forgets, right? He's like, oh, where am I? Uh, Am I drunk? Uh, Where am I? I don't feel drunk. I'll have myself a shower. (laughs) Why not? Because I'm kind of gross. And then Dodd comes in. And it's like, oh my god! Like, who's this guy? These people don't know who they are, or each each other are. Dodd knows who he's chasing, but doesn't expect to find him in his shower. So then he has to get in a naked brawl with him. Man, I gotta tell you, this is always a fear of mine. Where I'm like in the shower at my most vulnerable, got my Doctor Squatch on, and dude, I have to I have to do battle with an intruder. <laughs> don't have to throw that soap at him and just fight naked, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's something I think about of like, okay, someone came in this bathroom right now. I'm dead. What what would I do? Squirt that shampoo in their <laughs> eyes, buddy. I get <laughs> well to Dodd's credit, mm-hmm. he gets kicked. So mm-hmm. uh good for, for Leonard. I always laugh at that scene a little bit because Dodd walks in to take a leak. Clearly the shower would be steamed <laughs> up and you would hear the water running, and he's gotta finish going to the bathroom before he's somebody in my shower. <laughs> Dodd Dodd gets what's coming to him. Exactly. A little bit of stupidity. But what kind of precedes this too. The naked man shall always defeat the stupid man. Help me kind of think of this too. Why is. uh, Because we kind of figure out, you know, what's going after Dodd. That's going to come into play here in just a bit. Yeah. Well, kind of what leads to this is Leonard invites. Uh, sex worker prostitute up to his room to enact some weird scenario. Just lay here on the bed with my mementos? Okay, so this is one of the... Th- yes. This is titled The Movie Map. Ah. <laughs> this is where I start to say bullshit to I don't remember anything. Okay. If this is something that he... Okay, so here's the premise for everybody. You invite a hooker to your room. You pay her whatever amount it's going to cost to have this scenario played out. Scenario is... Here's some of my wife's trinkets, her bra, this book, which was the aforementioned book earlier when she said, don't be a prick and let me read the book, her hairbrush and like a, like a clock. I need, he tells the hooker. Did you say the bra? Yeah. Yeah. He tells the hooker, I need you to take these items and put them around the room like they're yours, just in a natural way that you would put the stuff. Do I need to wear it? No, don't you dare put on my wife's bra. Yeah. Just pretend it's yours without really, 
She grabs a brush, starts to brush her. Don't you brush my, don't you brush her hair, but it's yours. So it's this really weird interaction where he's having her role play his dead wife, but she can't really role play that dead wife because he doesn't really want her to use that stuff. Okay. So once all of that's done, they go to bed, not that way, like to sleep. Yeah. She stays awake until he zonks out. Then she goes into the bathroom slams the door which is replaying the night of the event that happened mm-hmm. in his house when his wife got yeah. got raped yeah and then he comes to yeah he comes to sees all of the stuff around and i guess finds a moment of peace because he feels like his wife is still okay mm-hmm. or he goes in the bathroom to take it out on whoever's in the bathroom which would only be her yeah nebulous here mm-hmm. regardless plays out boom slams door he comes to shakes the sleep out of his eyes goes in the bathroom and she's doing a bump on the toilet kicks her out a bump a rail not a dump yeah Yeah, b not d she take she's 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 take blowing a line on the toilet yeah this this practice that he engages in feels familiar to me jesse Mm -hmm. How many, and he even says, how many of your items have I burned? How many times have I done this? Okay, so all of that is a cover-up for how do you remember to do this? Yeah. How do you remember to put this stuff around? How do you remember that maybe you've done, how do you remember where you keep all your wife's shit? Or. Because none of the, you don't even have a suitcase, dude. Yeah, Absolutely. Or I, I don't buy that he doesn't have any memories. He's full of shit. No, yeah, I think no, I think he 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 has long selective, ter- yeah, selective long term memories of like okay maybe and I think maybe is he running an experiment here in his little time gap? Maybe if I throw this shit around the hotel room, make it look like that night, maybe I can have better clarity on what actually happened or get a peaceful night's sleep. I don't know. Yeah, he did say in the sound that you played, mm-hmm. I'd like to reach over and still feel that the bed is warm for where you were. Yeah. So there's some possibilities as to why he does this. Mm-hmm. But if we look at it from where you, know, you and I sit in analyzing fiction, it's to no avail. None of this is going to make one damn bit of difference, except it's going to be a very interesting cinematic piece to, to Nolan and his brother's credit yeah. that makes us give pause to like, I think everybody in this film is full of shit, including you, Lenny. I think, they're all full- you, I think you're the bad guy. We're going to have some an interesting, because I'll ask you at the end, like, Okay, give me your final hypothesis on what you think happened. And I think you and I have two very different interpretations on the finale of the film. But I can't wait to get there. I he, mean, yeah. When he opens the door and then the hooker's on the toilet, yeah. snorting the cocaine, mm-hmm. it goes. it's another version of what we saw or hear in the sound that you played earlier when he's rude to the guy that runs the hotel. Mm-hmm. She indulges this ridiculous fantasy of her of his that has nothing to do with what this woman is usually taking money for. Yeah. And then when she does it to the best of her ability, he acts like a jackass and kicks her out. Mm-hmm. Not that he owes some prostitute off the street, yeah. some courtesy. Yeah. But again, we're reminded mm-hmm. you all on this planet are supposed to indulge these ridiculous memories that I have and play by this fucked up set of rules on this stupid game for this woman that, in my opinion, yeah. I killed. <clears throat> And when you do that, then I'm just going to move along and find someone else. And the moment you start to get comfortable or indulge me or get too close, then I'm turned into an asshole. Like, 
Leonard's a prick, Jesse. You see, you have that interpretation, and then I could kind of read the scene as like, well, I'm trying to do literally whatever I can to fragment the past yeah. to repair the gray. The I gray, love that too. The gray area, right? I love that too, sure. It's all going to boil down to like... Wait, take, let's take both of what we said, though. Okay. Take yours and mine and put them together. Because mm-hmm. I think those are both... I think those both work. It can be both at the same time. Mm-hmm. If we take what you said and we take what I said, yeah. and we get how the whole scene played out, we come to the the realization that it's all to no avail. Like it's all a failed experiment over and oh, yeah. over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Yeah. Because who's the en- it times the enemy, right? Right. You have a finite amount of time to make that work mm-hmm. before it resets again. You're like, oh, where was I? Literally the last line of the movie. Because I think he's doing that too. What you said, I think that's also part of what he's yeah. doing. Like, I, I need you to heal this wound. But I think yours is for guilt, and I think mine is to mm. is for truth. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes, mine is for guilt, dude. I love Nolan. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Uh, hey, how about some more Joey pants? Okay. A car this nice, you should lock. Who the fuck are you, Teddy? Your buddy? Prove it, Sammy. Remember Sammy? You told me about Sammy. Jeez. What the fuck are you doing in my car? What, your sense of humor went with the memory? Do you even know why you're here? Unfinished business. Lenny, let me inform you. Your business here is very much finished. You're still here because of Natalie. Who's Natalie? Schmuck, whose house do you think you just walked out of? Oh, that's right. Take a look at your pictures. I bet you got one of her. Oh, nice shot, Leibowitz. <laughs> You'll want to make a note. You can't trust her. Oh, yeah? Why's that? Because by now, she's taking a look at this suit and the car, and she's starting to figure out ways of turning the situation to her advantage. I think that's all true, right? Yeah. She's already got you staying with her, for Christ's sakes. You can't go back in there. Let me give you the name of a motel. You're lucky I ran into you. Rod's bad news. What do you mean, bad news? He's involved with drugs. All right, look. These. You see these? This is the bar where she works. Her boyfriend's a drug dealer. She takes orders for him, arranges meets. He writes messages on the back of these. Then she slips him the answers when she serves him his drinks. Why should I care? Because when she gets jammed up, she's going to use you to protect herself. Yep. Guys are going to want to know what happened to her boyfriend. Guys are going to come after her. Somebody's got to pay, Lenny. Somebody always pays. Maybe she'll make it you. Oh, yeah? Well, maybe she'll make it you. Is that it? You worried that she's going to use me against you? No. Why not? She doesn't even know who I am. Because she doesn't know who I am. Okay, so, God, so good. Joe, you're right. Joey Pants is awesome. Yeah, he's really good in this. Well, let's take this a step further. Okay. Do you think he sees Natalie, Joey Pants, as a threat? Yes. Oh, she's an obstacle to his 200K. Well, she's going to start using my prized pig, Mm -hmm. Charlotte's Web, over here (laughs) as... For what I'm doing, right? Yeah. For her nefarious intentions, because he's going to go kill Bob. Nobody gets Wilbur but me. Yeah, man. Look, the girlfriend of aforementioned drug dealer, Jimmy Grants, by the way, sees his car roll up at the time it's supposed to roll up for the meeting that she's arranged with him. Mm-hmm. But the guy driving the car isn't her boyfriend, but he's in her boyfriend's clothes. Oh, okay. It's so silly. What? Yeah. Of course, you know, maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but I'm going to lean on the side of the girlfriend of the drug dealers probably got some street in her. 
And I think Natalie proves to us that she's got some street in her. She's some street smarts too. Sure. Yeah. This is not loving girl next door. Come here. Mommy made you an apple pie. Yeah. It's miles from that. Right. So why is this dude in my boyfriend's clothes and my boyfriend's car walking in here saying that I don't know who anybody is? Oh, but wait a minute. This is where the plot thickens even more. Mm-hmm. You're the fucking memory guy. Yeah. My boyfriend told me about you. Well, the only way her boyfriend, Jimmy Grants, would have told her about Leonard is if Teddy had already set up a meeting yeah. with Jimmy Grants. Okay, so what you said is so right on. Mm-hmm. Joey Pants has a, like the perfect alibi Mm -hmm. for drug deal after drug deal gone bad with nobody to rat on. It's got the, he's got the perfect person to keep a secret with, which the secret was we killed that drug dealer and stole the money, but I can't remember that. So all I have to do as, as Teddy is keep the information to myself. He's perfect unless Natalie gets in the middle and she starts screwing things up, and then he starts following her and not listening to me, and all of a sudden I have another factor that, yes, it's absolutely what's happening. You know what's really great about that money, too? It may as well be Marion Crane's stash of cash, because yep. like it's essentially just in the trunk of this car, and because of Leonard's condition... Goes away. We forget that it's even there. Yep. It becomes a non-factor. Yep. Uh, no, I think that's all. that's all really... I think it's all really interesting and fascinating, but let's talk about Natalie here. I'm going to play the next sound and we're going to learn a little bit more about her intentions and, you know, what's her game in all this? Uh, you don't have a fucking clue, do you? You're, you're, you're just blissfully ignorant, aren't you? Look, I have this condition. Yeah, I know all about your fucking condition, Leonard. Probably know more about it than you do. You don't have a fucking clue about anything else. What happened? What happened is that Jimmy went to meet some guy named Teddy. He took a lot of money with him and he never came back. Jimmy's partners think I set him up. I don't know if you know this, Teddy, or how well. Neither do I. Don't protect him. I'm not. Help me. How? Get rid of Dodd for me. What? Kill him. I'll pay you. Uh, uh, What do you think I am? I'm not going to kill someone for money. What then? Love? What would you kill for? Mm. Kill for your wife, wouldn't you? That's different. Mm. Not to me. I wasn't fucking married to her. Hey, hey. don't talk about my wife. I can talk about whoever the fuck I want. I can say whatever I want and you won't remember. I could call your wife a fucking whore and we can still be friends. Calm down. Easy for you to say you can't get scared. You don't know how, you fucking idiot. <laughs> oh, keep going. Yeah, I know. It keeps going for like mm-hmm. another 30 seconds before he punches her in the face. She knows exactly what she's doing there. Oh, yeah. The street smart aspect because the first thing she does the second she comes into the thing is she removes all the pens yep. from her stationery, right? Yep. Because she knows, well, he's going to quickly forget that he punched me if I don't give him a way to jot that shit down, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of genius. I mean, if, if your intention is to play this man with a brain injury, I mean, I guess that's how you're going to do it. You know, we were talking earlier about the possibility of the two of them consummating the relationship. Mm-hmm. And in film noir, generally, mm-hmm. when the femme fatale finds some reluctance from the Sam Spade, if you will, yeah, to carry out her nefarious bidding. What does she usually do? Yeah. She sleeps with him. Mm-hmm. I think we're at this moment. And not that I'm so much hung up on this, other than I've been thinking about this for the better part of almost a generation, well, generate 20, almost 25 years. 23 now. years. Did they or didn't they? What I think is it's not beyond the possibility 
for Natalie to do that. But where things start to get sticky is I think we see in some moments Mm -hmm. Natalie genuinely taking on a piece of pity for Leonard. As hard as she is and what she's about to say with how he got a venereal disease and as rough as that conversation gets, it's even off mic that you didn't play. Yeah. There's a piece of her Mm -hmm. that... I think genuinely finds, I don't know if I would go so far as to attraction, but interest at least. Yeah. And you see that in the first diner, the first diner scene at the end, that seems like a very compassionate scene between two people that. After she gets over the fact that he can't remember her because she's bitchy at first. Like you won't even call me. Yeah. 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 She's that character. Yeah. Is so good in this film. We've Mm -hmm. talked a lot about her tonight. Yeah. And the performance is great too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I guess let's talk about. Okay, so he punches her. Yeah, and then she goes out to the car, and he's like, "Oh, I got, got to find a pen. I got to, I got to drop this down." And she just sits in the car for like what twenty seconds. Yep. Gets out, comes in. Oh, what happened? Oh, what happened? Like Dodd, 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 fucking hit me. Yep. He hit you. Why? Because of you. You told me to go reason with him. You. It's your fault. Oh my God! Manipulation. I guess, I guess for the viewer, we're like, "Wow, can't trust her." No. For Leonard, that's my new truth. I guess Dot hit you. I gotta do something about that. Especially <laughs> when he gets her Polaroid out and writes on the back. So once you have, in his world, mm-hmm. ascended to the assuredness of felt tip pin to the back of the margins on the Polaroid, you have become canon. That's his Bible. And once he writes down helper, blah, 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 then at that point, no matter what anybody says, he won't believe them because the only deferring voice is Teddy, and she's already defused Teddy too. Mm -hmm. So now she's got it all made. You know what she gets to do? Yeah. Trick him into going fighting or killing Dodd. Yeah. Which is the part that you like where he gets shot and we just, am I chasing Mm -hmm. him or is he chasing me? Exactly. And what does that have to do with his wife's death? Nothing. Dude, we're we're in some other strange film over here, yeah, and yeah. that's why film noir, it it because film noir does that too. Yeah, they, they just get crazy with the plots and oh, it's an insurance adjuster. No, it's this is like sex caper now, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have the scene at the bar that you you previously mentioned next, which is him going there because he's got this coaster that Teddy showed him. Right? Is like he's like she sets up the meetings. So he goes there and she sees him. Oh, who's driving my my boyfriend's car wearing his clothes? That's the only reason why she I think she invites him back to her house is like, what the fuck is going on here, right? Yeah. <laughs> I gotta solve this mystery from uh Natalie's perspective. Mm-hmm. And the love how she sh- tries to screw with him and they spit and that that again, the the, the Bob Hoskins got <laughs> that that you know, cliff from the cheers, right? I mean yeah. he's just there all the time in the CD bar that I would probably like to have a drink in as long as no one's spitting in it, right? right. Just a little dive bar. But we're getting close. We're getting close to the kind of the moments uh Anything else in the color sequences kind of up to this? I mean, we're, we're kind of getting to it, right? Though the, the the tattoo scene, the tattoo parlor scene. Yeah. Yeah. It speeds up to Emma's tattoo parlor. Yeah. Throws the Jaguar into park street side. And he's like, I'm going to get the license plate tatted on my thigh. So this is an interesting moment. Let's talk about this license plate. Okay. Once you, okay, if the clues are white, or no, clue one is male. Clue two is white. Three is... First name is Teddy. Clue four is last initial is G. Mm-hmm. G, you've narrowed this down to about, I don't know, 6,000 people yeah. in the state of California alone. Yeah. Looks like that guy from Baby's Day Out. 
Tattoo, yeah, yeah. Clue five, mm-hmm. drugs. Yeah, not much help there. Clue six, though, is different. Yeah. There's only one license plate that is SGI3, SG137IU. Boom, did Good I? Good for you. Hell yeah, where'd that come from? <laughs> yeah. I don't have short-term yeah. memory there, issues. There you go. Yeah, so. You have character name issues. Boy and how. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting that he would go that far. Mm-hmm. Is he, the question then is, is he ready to finally get over? Because that license plate is not going to be nearly as available. Oh, yeah. As the other five clues might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's honing in on the person, right? Or so we think. Maybe. At least this week. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask, you asked me a question about time earlier, which was, yeah. and then we'll get to the, the next black and white sequence. I think we're going next. Yeah. He asked me, how long do you think it was before he forgot the most recent event that he was participating in? Mm-hmm. How long do you think this is where our movie picks up with Jimmy G getting murdered, which is essentially where the story starts? From the death of his wife. How long? How many? What's oh, the, shit. A year? That, two, two years? Two months, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm with you. In two years, yeah. how many capers could he and Teddy have pulled off? I mean, well, if each caper is this film where they have to do this stuff, right? Uh, 15, 20, maybe? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a lot of work on Joey Pants' end because... Yeah. He's got to cover up all the loose ends and the clues. And yeah. that's why he's all so mad at him. He's like, dude, get that Jaguar off the street. That's a missing person now. Like, we yeah. got to get that out of here. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work to keep keep it afloat. So I don't know if I can go as high as 15. That, might, still. that might even be a little high. Okay. So, yeah, you're with me, like, a year to two years. Mm-hmm. Okay. I might even buy six months. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. So let's get to it. I think, you know, what makes Ince- uh, Inception all a tease, right? Mm. What makes this film so unique is how it's intercut with the black and white footage. But I think we do. We, if the audience wasn't lost enough as is, you know, just going through the color stuff backwards, us trying to do the black and white at the same time, dude, it's like, good luck. Yeah, I know. So let's talk about that because I think that's a very important part of the film, which is, and you know what movie it made me think of? Like, instantly and like because it's leonard in a hotel room black and white naked other than some boxer shorts making new tattoos talking to a mystery man on the phone we don't hear the voice on the phone though it's just leonard talking to him about sammy jenkins and we'll talk about him here in a little bit dude double indemnity dude this is fred mcmurray mm-hmm. speaking into the phonograph you know his confession yeah very noir like i really like that yeah um but let's talk about the Sammy Jenkins of it all. Sammy couldn't pick up any new skills at all. But I find something in my research. Conditioning. Sammy should still be able to learn through repetition. It's how you learn stuff like riding a bike. You just get better through practice. It's a completely different part of the brain from the short-term memory. So I have the doctors test Sammy's response to conditioning. Just pick up any three objects. That's a test? Hey, where were you guys when I did my CPA? Sorry. Ta-da. Oh! What the fuck? It's a test, Sammy. We'll test this, you fucking quack. Some of the objects were electrified. That gave him a small shock. They kept repeating the test, always with the same objects electrified. The point was to see if Sammy could learn to avoid the electrified objects, not by memory, but by instinct. I think the Sammy Jenkins aspect of the story is 
very important, right? Yeah. It's trying to determine this is something from a past, from my past job where I was this insurance dude. Talk about film noir, dude, yeah. insurance claims. Yeah. yeah. That's that's every film noir plot. Yeah. Uh, that or some sort of like uh mob meeting gone awry, right? <laughs> yeah. Or some MacGuffin Maltese Falcon sitting on someone's desk. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's one of the three. Yeah. Uh, but he's investigating this guy, this couple, they were in a car accident. He has suffered this condition, the short-term memory, and he can't form, you know, new memories. Mm-hmm. And so they try and test it in a few different ways. Uh, one of the ways is like administering his wife's insulin shots that he can, he knows how to do it. He knows all the steps to do it. But you know, has to be coached on when to do it, right? Yeah, he's just kind of a blank at that at that point. Mm-hmm. Stephen Tobolowski is really good as Sammy Jenkins, just like cantankerous, like angry, kind of like neighbor person. It seems like. And what I like about this is Leonard is very different looking, right? Clean cut, yep. hair slicked to the parted to the side, in a suit. So I think there's some truth to this, at least in in my interpretation of the film, which is I think he did encounter something like this before in the past. Yeah. Uh, where it does get a little gray is in how Joey Pants tries to spin the whole story. But what do you think of just the the Sammy Jenkins MacGuffin of it all? Yeah, that he's this investigator looking into the claims that this man has made that after a traumatic brain injury begins to suffer or has an onset of suffering of the condition that Leonard says he has, which is no short-term memory. And then what's revealed upon this investigation is that Teddy... Sorry, Lenny says that it's a mental illness and ends up sticking it to Sammy's wife because the insurance won't cover mental illness. Injury, it would. Traumatic brain injury, it would be covered. Mental illness, it won't. It's pretty fucked up. up. That is pretty fucked up. So (laughs) what Sammy Jenkins' wife is after is the truth on whether Sammy's really suffering from this or whether he's a con artist. Now the story, this gets even more complex with what Teddy tells Leonard later slash earlier in the film. Yeah. But at this point, the black and white version of this is that upon investigation, Leonard has uncovered that the insurance claim will not be paid out Mm -hmm. and that Sammy was suffering from a mental illness. And the big loser in this is Sammy's wife. Yeah. Who essentially down the line is just like, I think towards the end is like, I got to see if he's, you know, is this an act? Yeah. Is he screwing around? And then because she got screwed over by Leonard Shelby, fantastic film noir name, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, has him do an, an insulin shot like immediately after she got the first, which was if okay, if he can remember, he wouldn't give it to me because he just did it. Yeah. So then he he gives it. Right. So is he screwing around? Is he just like, oh well, kill my wife, right? Like I'll end up where I end up. Or is this just like she wants to die at this point because she's been dealt such a shitty hand by Leonard, right? What's tough? Yeah. So the story goes. The final test she gives him is, you're either going to remember or you're going to kill me. And in this story, this black and white piece of the story, he can't remember, mm-hmm. he being Sammy. And he over-injects her with insulin and kills his wife, which then puts him in a mental institution or some facility. Mm-hmm. The question, though, and I know we probably differ on this, is did that really happen? 
I'm going to say no, but we can, and we'll get to that later. And that gets into the part that I talked about a little bit earlier. Okay, so in, in the context of this investigation, Leonard kind of seems like this dogged, my, dare I say, asshole? Because yeah. he really ends up kind of screwing over Sammy's wife. Well, he's dressed like one, too. He looked an uptight prick. Yeah. And that's what his wife calls him. Yeah. Don't be a prick. I just want to read the book, please. And what does he do? Kind of like, okay, so that bit that we've referenced twice is also important because it's the only interaction between Leonard and his wife prior to her demise that's actual verbal. Yeah. Other than him pinching her thigh when she's sitting on the bed in her underwear and <laughs> her saying, ow, ow, which why is he even doing that? But we'll get to that too. Okay, so let's stick with this. I guess he's coming home from work and she's just sitting there reading a book that's been read about a kajillion times because the pages are folded and dog-eared yeah. and rusted. So, <laughs> so dare say something rusted. she likes, enjoys, right? Loves it. Yeah. And... His response is, I always thought the fun in reading a book was seeing where it went or something along those lines. And she's like, you don't know, be a prick. Well, hang on. Hang on I, 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 I agree with him. I kind of believe that, except for Salem's Lot. That's right. <laughs> that's rereadable 15 times. To, the, to, to Salem's the, Lot. How many times for you? I've read it five times. How many of you? I think I'm at four. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, it's a fucking fantastic book. I love it speaking too. of which, hang on. Yeah. Digression. Tab, tab open. Tab. Time out. Has Salem's Lot the movie just been completely disavowed by Warner Brothers Pictures? Yeah. I can't find uh, anything, a movie poster, really? a release date. A, you go to any, the IMDb, the Wikipedia page, there's no movement on this particular film. It was really close. I mean, that was moving well, a year ago. Well, the, the release date that took it over was Evil Dead Rise. That was the slot for Salem's Lot, and then Evil Dead took it. Is that movie so bad that they can't see the light of day? Is that another Batgirl tax write-off? Okay, and to that, yeah. why is that movie so hard to make? Yeah. Why is that so hard to make? I don't know. Wow, it's gone. You can't even find it. Nothing. Well, no, like, it's out there, but, like, there's no information on when we're ever going to see oh, it. Oh, my goodness. Which is kind of blowing my mind a little bit. Last Voyage of the Demeter has come and gone, or will will be here and gone before we even get more information on Salem's Lot. Wow, Jesus! A mystery I will keep investigating, and we will we will we'll come back to this subject. By the way, I want the movie poster of that Last Voyage of the Demeter. Have you I seen it? I think that movie can maybe be pretty good. I, I, we're we're seeing. That. Yeah, well, I'm down. Yeah. Uh, okay. Tab closed. Uh, <laughs> play. Yeah. So he kills his wife, right? So Sammy kills his wife, and then he is incarcerated in a facility for people that are mentally incapacitated in some manner. Which is where the short story takes place. Yep. The Jonathan Nolan short story, which was published after the script was written. Well, I'll talk a little bit about the road to get to this film because it's pretty great. Okay. Uh, but it's not Leonard, but it's a character named Earl telling this story in a mental institution trying to convince himself to escape and kind of telling, you know, a fragmented story the way Leonard does with the tattoos and all of that mm. to to get to the film that, that that we watched. Pretty pretty interesting. But you know, now it's he has a clue left uh, for him. He's he, and he's telling the story to some phantom on the phone, right? Now when you saw the movie for the first time, was there any doubt of who was on the other line or was it kind of clear to you? No, there's tons of doubt. I had no idea that was Joey Pants. I okay. I am not even 100% sure today that's who that is. Mm. How many people might have their hooks in this guy? It seems like it probably is. 
I think it's part of the ruse, right? It's sure. like, it's this long con of like, well, it goes this far. Like I have to talk to this guy periodically to keep spurning to the Sammy Jenkins shit yep. to just keep this going. So he has some like idea mm-hmm. to, to tell himself, mm. but I think I'm with you though. It could be, it could be someone else. We've never, that doesn't see the light of day in this film. Right. But the first time I had no idea who was on the phone. Mm-hmm. But yep. the, the note that left is don't don't answer the phone, right? No, the the one that comes under the door with the envelope. Mm-mm. He finds something. I don't know if it's on him. Oh or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Yes. And it says don't yes. answer the phone. So yes. he hangs up. He's like, oh god, like, who <laughs> what have, have I been, been doing? Who have I been talking to? Yeah. And he kind of gets a little frenetic, and he's like listening through the walls, and then that's when the letter comes. Is like answer my call or pick Take up the my phone. Call Take my call. Yeah. Yeah. And it's Joey Pants, and it kind of guides us into kind of the rest of the film, right? Yeah. So what's in the envelope is a picture of Leonard with a very, very happy look on his face. Yeah. Yeah. And covered in blood. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't often be happy if I was in that same kind of carry like state, but he is. Yeah. He puts on some sort of plaid shirt and a vest and Mm -hmm. is like, I'll go with you. Like, yeah, you're the guy he hasn't written on his Polaroid yet don't believe his lies. Right. Right. So he's like, yeah, he, he has a, uh, you know, the picture. So he, you know, he goes and follows him out. Uh, and then that's where he takes the picture of him too. Right. In the, in the garage, he's like, yeah, don't take my picture. And so this is, this is the con, right? This is what they've done to, for 15 other people, which is I'm going to use my attack dog in mm. this situation to go. Cause he, I, he's a, a killer, yep. especially in your point of view. Right. Yeah. And so he meets Jimmy Grant in uh, this derelict factory, and he's like, "Oh, he's like, where's Teddy?" He's like, "Oh, he's there." And then, so this is where I get a little confused. It's like Jimmy mentions Sammy, right? Yeah. And so he beats him with this tire iron, and he's like, "What did you say? Where did you hear that from?" And he starts freaking out, starts beating him to death with this thing, and. We kind of don't know. I, the, to me, that's the one unanswered mystery was like, how did Jimmy Grant hear about the Sammy Jenkins story? Because these two guys had to have met prior. Was it in setting up this drug deal, possibly? That's what I think. Okay. And I could see Teddy. but It sucks that it's Teddy and Lenny, huh? Mm-hmm. be a little bit, if it, a little easier if they weren't quite so close. But I think Teddy has told Jimmy Grant's look, dude, I got this guy. He's the perfect chump. We can use him in whatever way we want. And all of this is set up by Teddy to have Jimmy assassinated to take this money. Yeah. So look, I've got this, this lackey. We've got this attack dog with no memory. He tells this crazy story about this guy named Sammy Jenkins. It's all bullshit. Here's how crazy this guy is. Like I can see just in the building or the faux building of a relationship that Teddy's trying to establish with Jimmy Grant's that this gets mentioned. But outside of that, unless it's Natalie, and I don't know when Natalie would have had that conversation because she doesn't know Teddy and she hasn't met Leonard yet, where she would have given that information to Jimmy Grant. So it, it, it has to be Teddy. Sure. Yeah, there's a bit of a nebulous there. And yeah. Well, I really like this scene. And, uh, you know, he beats him, takes the picture of this. He strips him first. He's like, well, I'm going to put this guy's clothes on. Mm-hmm. And then this is where we get the transition, right? From the black and white to the color with the genius, right? Yeah. You know, with the... Shaking of the picture. Yeah, making it kind of come uh, to fruition in the picture. And it changes the color. So now I think for the audience, it's like, okay, we're kind of 
we're caught up now. Now everything has kind of shifted. And uh, Teddy comes in. He beats him over the head. That shit kills, Lenny. And then we get this great exposition of like revealing all the secrets or the, it almost seems like this is something they do every time they kill somebody, which is like, I got to give him this whole spiel, right? Mm -hmm. Come on, you got your revenge. Enjoy it while you still remember. What difference does it make whether he was your guy or not? It makes all the difference. Why? You're never going to know. Yes, I will. No, you won't. I will. Somehow. You won't remember. When it's done, I will know. It'll be different. Well, I thought so too. In fact, I was sure of it, but you didn't. That's right. The real John G. I helped you find him over a year ago. He's already dead. Don't lie to me anymore. Look, Lenny. I was the cop assigned to your wife's case. I believed you. I thought you deserved a chance for revenge. I'm the one that helped you find the other guy in your bathroom that night. The guy that cracked your skull and fucked your wife. We found him. You killed him. But you didn't remember. So I helped you. Start looking again. Looking for the guy you already killed. Oh, yeah? So who was he? Just some guy. I mean, does it even matter who? No reason, Lenny. No conspiracy, just bad fucking luck. A couple of junkies too strung out to realize your wife didn't live alone. But when you killed him, I, I was so convinced that you'd remember. But it didn't stick. Like, nothing ever sticks. Like, this won't stick. I took that picture. Just when you did it. Look how happy you are. I wanted to see that face again. Oh, gee, thanks. Fuck you. I gave you a reason to live, and you were more than happy to help. You don't want the truth. You make up your own truth, like your police file. It was complete when I gave it to you. Who took out the 12 pages? You, probably. No, it wasn't me. See, it was you. Why would I do that? To create a puzzle you could never solve? You know how many, how many towns, how many John G's or James G's? I mean, shit, Lenny, I'm a fucking John G. Your name's Teddy. My mother calls me Teddy. My name's John Edward Gamble. Cheer up. There's plenty of John G's for us to find. I don't know if I have better clarity or more confusion. He has a great line when they drive up to this place for the meeting. And the truck's parked there, and he's like, Oh, this truck. And Lenny, this truck's been parked here for like six months. Those trucks look pretty fresh. What are you fucking Pocahontas? (laughs) 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 Why don't you go with your hypothesis, and then I'll kind of go in on mine. Because this is kind of the crux of the film, right? Yeah, this is the big reveal. Yeah. Uh, This is at gunpoint, and... You have to question everybody's motives at this point, and none of them are pure. I don't know what Teddy has to lose anymore. So the story that he spins is the Sammy Jenkins event occurred. But Sammy was a faker, and you proved it. You proved he was a con man. No, 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 no. What about Sammy's wife? Sammy didn't have a wife, Lenny. You had a wife. Your wife was the diabetic, which then we flash back to the scene we'd seen earlier where, and there's no way any man of sane mind, unless you hated your woman, would do this. That she's sitting on the bed in her panties, and you walk up and squeeze the fat on her thigh. That's a one-way ticket to hell. 
You're not doing that. But you would do that if you were going to subcutaneously administer an insulin injection. Then we go to the story continues. We found the two guys, the one that got away, you know, we chased down. And as he's telling that story, we get the look at his wife underneath the shower curtain that apparently that they wrapped her up in when this, this um, attack happened. She's clearly alive. But where? Huh? But where? At the, in the house, like in, the, in, their, in their bed. In their, oh. I'm sorry, in their bathroom. Okay. So, you know, they tended to, wounds are healed. But in the process of Leonard trying to stop this attack on his wife, I do think his head gets smashed into the wall, into that glass, which is where he gets that brain injury. Now, to the extent of how much and what happened in that, it's hard to say. And now we start to play with that space of, does he really even like her? Or is this just recency bias? And because now that I miss her and I feel guilty, I'm painting a picture of her that never was. Kurt Cobain. Anyway, um, <laughs> little hot take there. Yeah. By the time all of this plays out and this conversation between the two of them are done, we come to realize that Teddy is insinuating that the Sammy Jenkins accidental death of his wife was really what Leonard did to his wife. Go back to that scene yeah. in the facility where Sammy, in quotes, after having murdered his wife, has been incarcerated, in quotes. The nurse passes by and the vision of Sammy turns into Leonard yeah. there. Okay, so then if that's the case, did Teddy take him out of there? I would believe that Teddy would probably do that for this prize-winning pig, this attack dog with no memory, which yeah. is the perfect attack dog. Sure. So now you're in this space, Jesse, which mm -hmm. is who's really the bad guy in this? Because it looks like it would be Teddy, except no, 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 I don't think so. Teddy says, yeah. I did this because I felt bad for you. Yeah. And when we chased that dude down and you executed him and I took that picture, which he clearly did because he gives him the envelope underneath the door that says, take my call. And in that envelope is the picture of Leonard having executed yeah. that John G. Mm hmm. He, saw, he, he championed his cause. Yeah. This gets to my biggest contention. Okay. Okay, this is my biggest theory on the film. When you look back at all of the things that Leonard says he has not been able to do since his wife's demise, he continually does them the entire film. Mm -hmm. I can't make any new memories, except when it doesn't suit me. Now, he, he argues that he makes habit out of order and routine. That's bullshit. Yeah. As you go from apartment to apartment, place to place, suit to suit, bullshit. There's mm -hmm. no routine in that. He's lying. Yeah. And I feel like there's enough evidence that the remembering of people and places and things is selective when he needs it to be. And the order that he has in his life so he knows to check this pocket or hang up this map on this wall or reread this file or put this tattoo or all mm -hmm. of these other things to go through the process, Jesse, every morning of waking up, mm -hmm. remembering or not remembering, luckily looking in the mirror at your body and then from the things in your body, decoding that over and over, he would spend half the day just figuring out where the hell he was. 
I don't think he's telling the truth. And I do think that although Sammy is a real guy, Sammy Jenkins is a guy in Leonard's life, the terrible dark side of that story, which is Sammy Jenkins over insulating his wife and killing her, Mm -hmm. is Leonard's admission. Pretty good. And so Teddy, you know, after feeling really bad for him and actually trying to help him, he's realizing, look, this is never going to happen. He tells him as much. So look, look, I thought we'd make a little extra money on the side. Who cares? It's yeah. 100K for you. Yeah. So that's 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 my take. That's your take? It's Yeah, it's it's not bulletproof, but... I, I think it's a good take. Go, let's hear yours. That's why I love this film. That's why I love this director so it's much so good, is, yeah. is just the, the space to play. I mean, like when we watch Hangover Part 2, I mean, it's fairly A to B, right? Mm-hmm. It's a bag of Fanta. I mean, it's just, yeah. it is what it is. Not and a lot of interpretation. The Batman, even the, the new Batman movie. It's it's fairly just like it's there. The The film is there. Yeah. Here, we've gone off on theories, the characters, who's the villain, who's this. Yeah. So I actually think, I've, I've had this theory since the first time I saw it, which is I think that Joe, Joey Pants uh, was the other, was the guy that smashed him into the mirror. Okay. And he's not a cop. I think he's just a con man, murdering, just bastard, right? Okay. Who kind of saw him. I was like, okay, now I've left him in this predicament. I could actually use that to my advantage and spend this whole year and a half of conning, however long we decided it was, right? Yeah. To me, I think he's the only person spouting truth in this entire film. I think everyone else is, you know, playing Leonard and whatnot. And especially here in this scene where he's telling him, he's like, I'm John G. That's my real name. Yeah. He's not trying to lie because I think we've learned Natalie gave him the the DMB. Uh, his name, real name is John Edward Gamble. Yeah. He's not trying to hide that. No. But the only way to continue to get this ruse yep. is the Sammy Jenkins story. So that's where I think he says the Sammy thing that was, eh, that was, that was you, Lenny. That was, that was you. That was your wife. And you see that hesitation in Guy Pierce where he's like, no, it wasn't me. It was. I was like my Sammy, wife, my wife, di- my wife didn't have diabetes, right? And then you see the the two scenes of the insulin on her thigh, and then her pinching, and you see him struggling with trying to like divulge the truth. Uh, so I think yeah, there is a mastermind there. I think he's still using him, and I he's still leading him along like kind of some sort of an attack dog. Yeah. So it differs a little bit from your interpretation of I. I don't think Leonard killed his wife. I do think he was injured in that thing, but by Joey Pants in the thing, who saw an advantage that he could use this in. I don't think either are wrong. I think it's two unique ways to watch the movie, and I think there's probably multiple ways that you and I haven't even thought of. Right? How fun! I love that. We could go back and forth, and you know what we could do mm-hmm. to Nolan's credit, mm-hmm. we could sit down and we could go through. Okay, from point whatever we say. So wouldn't watch it from start to finish. Jesse, I need to watch, I need you to watch these six moments in this film with me if we could find them. Yeah. So I can defend my case. Okay, Matt, that's there. And then we could, and then you end up just, and, and that's what it's about. Yeah. Then you do your version of it. I like yours too. Mm-hmm. I like yours too. Yeah. What, yeah, what if Teddy was the other guy? Oh, that's even, more, and like, that's not a possibility in film noir. Of course, that's a possibility in film noir. Because he kills one of them, right? Well, and think about this to, to more, a little bit more credence to your argument. Yeah. This world's around Doug, drugs. Mm-hmm. The criminality of this is drugs. Yeah. If his argument is two junkies strung out, too strung out to know any better, that involves drugs. If the tattoo number five is, has access to drugs, then we're playing in a space where. If the guys that did that to Leonard's wife, Mrs. Shelby, mm-hmm. 
We're both drug addicts. And he knows drug dealers and Jimmy Grants. Yeah, Teddy. Then it all fits. Then th- th- there's nothing hard. I don't have exact proof. Yeah. But there's a plausibility that any of that can occur. Mm-hmm. I love all that. Yeah, me too. That's what it's all about. That's that's where the genius in like films like this lie. And I yeah. love that. Yeah, like I think you want a universal like finality to it all. I think you want a beginning, middle, and end and conclusion. But Not I, this film. You know, <laughs> keep, I know. keep looking. But I like the gray area sure. that Nolan's films exist in. I mean, it, it comes back to Inception, which is like, it was like, did that top topple over or did it not? I mean, it's it, it. he finds a unique way to like, once the film ends and we're walking out to the parking lot and we're driving home that night, we're talking about the movie, right? We're mm-hmm. talking about like, well, what did you think about that? Like, what do you think of that? Like, and that doesn't happen very often. Sometimes I'll talk about like, God, that movie was ass. That DC movie, right? Yeah. It's just, it's not concrete. It's not, it's not a, you know, you know, well thought out, you know, very dimensional conversation. But like these films, it's just like, yeah, I think everything is very intentionalized. Uh, I think time more than ever to kind of do some of this. Uh, Okay. So, uh, this is just a piece of, I think, uh, analysis from Stefano Gislotti. I don't even know who he is. I just found this online. Mm. That the purpose of the fragmented reverse sequencing is to force the audience into a sympathetic experience of Leonard's defective ability to create new long-term memories. Absolutely. Where prior events are not recalled since the audience has yet to see them. Absolutely. And I think that's a unique viewing experience. I mean, you're essentially in Leonard's headspace Piecing it together in the same way he does, right? Well, because if you want to remember sequentially as you're watching this, not the way it was in re-edited, but the way it was released, mm-hmm. you would have to take notes. Yeah. You'd have to take little notes, a little pieces of paper, mm-hmm. just like Leonard. Let's talk about Christopher Nolan real quick. I think this is pretty good, and we'll pepper in a little bit more about the guy who's a little bit of an enigma as well as we continue on this cask. Uh, grew up in England. Uh didn't go to film school. So for, you know, people out there, it was like, well, he has such a vast film knowledge and just such, you know, control over the craft that obviously he went to Cambridge or some sort of film school. Like, no, he has a degree in English. Yep. Uh, he actually got, you know, made films, you know, kind of the way I did, which was as a kid with a 16 millimeter, eight millimeter camera, like doing God knows what with action figures and whatnot. The big film that was an influence on him was Star Wars, New Hope, like it was for, you know, a lot of those filmmakers of that generation. And I found this fascinating, which is like his big start of like as a career was like in like a video production suite for like helping corporations, like filming training videos for them in like a corporate space and like how to videos and stuff like that. And then on the weekends, that's when he was piecing together like his own thing. That's where following came about. Mm. Following is this little $6,000 movie that's 70 minutes long, which is a good appetizer to memento. It's told out of order. And it's about this man who is following strangers on the street as inspiration for his new writing project. Mm. And then the more he follows, the more he gets involved with their lives. It's very noir. Like it's really well done. It's, Mm. For a $6,000 movie, you would have no idea. But, you know, in 96, you know, so he had his brother. So they grew up in London and then they moved to Chicago. So he's has dual citizenship. Um, Him and his brother, Jonathan, uh, took a cross country trip from Chicago to L.A. So Nolan could relocate to Los Angeles. 
And that's where he pitched him on the idea of like the story of Memento. And like, what if we did it like this and this and that? And it's a short story idea I've always had. And he was like, well, go write it. And like, let's see if we can make something like that happen. So uh, he wanted him to send him uh, the draft for the screenplay. And uh, they wrote it. Jonathan wrote this short story simultaneously as Nolan put together the screenplay. Uh, he wrote it initially as a linear story and then would go back and reorder in a way uh, smart uh, to check the logic of it. Smart. So not, you know, to see if it would work that way, but just to see if like, if I move piece D and put it in piece F, does the story still flow? Right. Yeah. And then it was through that like kind of experimentation where, it was like, this might be a unique way to do the movie, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I talked about the short uh, the short story. I, I need to find, I need to actually read that. I've never never gotten my eyes on that. Yeah. So then in July of 97, Nolan's girlfriend and now wife, Emma Thomas, who's been a producer on all of his films. Uh, we'll talk a lot about his collaborators, but that actually might be his best collaborator uh, of you know, just working alongside in you know, like a producing thing. She knew someone at New Market Films. Dude, Matt, do you remember New Market? Yeah. <laughs> just, Who? Yeah. I think their biggest film that they ever did was Passion of the Christ. Yep. In 2004, I believe. Uh, knew someone over there that was, you know, head of development and was like, showed him the screenplay. And he was like, oh my God, this is like the most unique thing I've ever read. But they were a financier of films. So the difference being like, they couldn't like make a film. They would... Pony up with other companies and like, well, we'll pay five million and you guys do ten, right? Mm-hmm. But they were like, this is such a good idea. Maybe we should just. So this was their first like fully financed. We'll do Memento, right? So they film it for uh, nine million dollars. Dude, can you imagine, Matt? This is like your first. You pro bono six thousand dollars out of pocket to do your little student for fun film. Turns out pretty good, right? It's on the Criterion Collection. We should be so lucky. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, and then you go to Hollywood. You kind of have an inroad that is, you know, again, what do we talk about? It's all who you know, right? Mm-hmm. And they throw $9 million at you to do this little thing. Dude, I wouldn't know what to do with $9 million. Yeah. That almost seems like too much money. Yeah. Uh, Brad Pitt was a name tossed around for Leonard Shelby, which probably would have made it a little more expensive. And yeah. I think he got pulled away into a... Fight Club, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Does it work with Pitt? Yes. In a bigger space, right? Sure. I think it has better cult, low-budget appeal with Guy Pierce for some reason, right? It absolutely works with Brad Pitt. They, they're they the same body at this time. Yeah. They're the same body type, I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they make the film. It's screening, and I'm like, this is pretty good. But it, it doesn't have a hard time finding international distribution. But stateside, they're like, we don't know what the hell to do with this movie. They're like... We'll put it out. It doesn't make any sense. It's a lot of work. It's 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 fairly busy. Uh, it makes its way to the Weinstein Company, and he's like, no one wants to see this fucking shit. Uh, uh, where am I here? Uh, this is the best part of the story. So Steven Soderbergh saw the film at some point because it's screening for people to like, hey, buy the film so we can show it nationwide, right? Soderbergh sees this thing, and he's like, this thing's fucking incredible. And he can't really do anything with it, like, per se, but any interview or place he goes, he's talking up Memento. He's like, you got to see this thing. Get your eyes on it. It's, like, the next best thing. So that word of mouth kind of helped propel, you know, them to, like, get this film out into the into the marketplace. 
500 theater screens, I think, was the most it ever had. Uh, pulled in $40 million uh, worldwide. Not bad. Pretty damn good. To the point, and this is the best part of the story, uh, the film's success was surprising to those who passed on the film, so much so that uh, Harvey Weinstein realized his mistake and tried to buy the film from New Market. That mm. fucking cave troll. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh yeah, I think it was it was like the little indie hit, and then it got nominated for a couple awards, and everyone's like, well, who's this new auteur? Like, what's he doing? And then he makes his way to Warner Brothers, where he's going to make his home until two years ago, right? Yeah. The Tenant HBO Max debacle. Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty good partnership. Fucking Weinstein's, dude. Yeah. I, it, but as much as, look, all right, we hate him in this. Mm-hmm. But they are really important players in independent cinema too. Let's, I mean, I hate them right well, now in the, this. It's the whole Tarantino story. I mean, Miramax, right? And I hate them for all of the proclivities that they found themselves engaged in. But you know, how do you? Yeah, you, to go from <sighs> I don't want to touch that thing because it doesn't make sense and no one's going to like it. To it becomes Whoops. popular and like, well, now I want it. It's just I know sleazeball, seedy, seedy ship. Yeah. Uh, a lot of medical experts have come out on this film saying it's probably one of the most realistic and accurate depictions of anterograde amnesia. Oh, God bless those people. Yeah. So to kind of wrap this up here, uh, I think, you know, better to hear from the the man himself on kind of how he kind of perceived uh, the story. And then we'll wrap this thing up. Sweet. So what I did is I alternated between these color sequences that are intensely subjective. Everything in the color sequences is from Leonard's point of view. We're always in his head, at least to begin with. We alternate with these black and white sequences that, at least to begin with, are objective. They present a little bit, a little bit more in a filmy way. It's black and white. It's grainy. Um, the shots are sometimes overhead, a little bit more distance. It's a more objective view. We don't hear the voice at the other end of the telephone. We're not really in his head. The voiceovers in the color sequence and the black and white sequence are very different. And the color sequence is the voice of the mind. It's the first person. It's very much his thoughts as he's thinking them. In the black and white scenes, they sound a bit like interview grabs. You know, a bit like this kind of interview, edited and laid over pictures of him in this room going about his, his life. So I wanted to introduce this almost documentary-style element at the beginning of the film to give the audience a little bit of information objective information about how this guy lives his life and what he thinks um, and to break up these scenes so the black and white sequences the chronology is is forward they uh, run forward in time as we realize as we go further and further along the film as the film progresses the color sequences become a little bit less intensely subjective I think towards the end of the film we really start to step outside his head a little bit and start to question some of the things we've been told about this character or some of the things he's told us himself. The black and white scenes, on the other hand, as the movie progresses, they become um, less and less objective. We start to get more and more into his head as he exists in this motel room. Uh, And in fact, then the black and white and the color scenes actually meet towards the end of the movie. And I think these two perspectives, the objective and the subjective, the backwards running narrative and the forwards running narrative, they actually meet at what is the, the end of the movie. Can I say something? A lot of times you'll hear these directors wax poetic about the works that they've done. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it is just self-aggrandizing accolades that they bestow upon their yeah. themselves upon their mighty thrones. Yeah. 
I've actually never heard that sound before. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic video on YouTube where he breaks down his films, what it looks like. No, just Memento as a story. Yeah. I could tell when I saw this film, Mm -hmm. that's what was happening. Mm -hmm. I hadn't pinpointed down to the documentary word. That's perfect way to describe the black and white, but the forward and backward sort of working into more cerebral versus more concrete. Mm -hmm. I could tell. And I'm, that's not, ooh, I'm so, I'm not saying yeah. that. Like, it's yeah. so well done yeah. that most of the time when I hear those people say, I'm like, I didn't get that from that. That's a bunch of horseshit. And it, I missed that completely. Mm-hmm. Nope. Absolutely. You can, and on the first try, yeah. I could tell that black and white stuff is the stuff that's happening in real time. The color stuff is what happened before we got to where we are now. Yeah. And it may not have been entirely right, but. He absolutely delivered on that attempt. And you know what's crazy about it? He delivered on that attempt by doing something as what might be inconsequential and disregarded as color versus non-color. Yeah. That guy is an absolute genius. And I think uh, I think the great part about it is when you do sequentialize the entire story, I think it's probably pretty simple, right? Yeah. It's a very simple drug story, but when it's told in this way, it's like, wow, this perspective into it is quite unique. He's very well spoken yeah. and you can tell he has this like great film knowledge that he's watched. And I kind of like that. He didn't go to film school like a Spielberg mm-hmm. or a Lucas or a Carpenter or a Scorsese that he learned grassroots front lines. Yeah. On the front lines, but also watched. Yes. He, he went like, like Tarantino. That's what I mean in the theater, like Tarantino. Yeah. I went to the movies and I learned how they did it. Right. Um, now let me ask you this and mm. we'll talk about it a little bit next week and then we'll get into the next question. Mm. He has gone on record saying he wrote this Oppenheimer screenplay in the first person. I don't know what that is, how that's possible. I've never heard that before, but I think we have like a, a an in to look into how we kind of dissect this film next week. I don't know if that's ever been done, honestly. Wow. <laughs> how do you write a screenplay in the first person POV? <sighs> I guess we'll find out, right? Well, I mean, titled film Oppenheimer, you would assume the first person POV would be Robert himself. Mm-hmm. But what if it's not? Mm-hmm. I Wow. Yeah. I, I can't wait for that movie. Is it literally exposition like Robert? It's just everything is from his eyes, right? The whole story. Man, maybe we should get a look at some of the spec pages on that i'm sure we could find it on drew script or Rama or something maybe it's got to be out there somewhere a leaked copy or leak there's got to be some leak out there i'll get on that this i week. thought you would like that right yeah that's kind of fascinating yeah i was like ooh, it's like i think when killian read the script he's like it was like overwhelming to him just like how important this role was but like it was written so differently mm. Mm. hey let's wrap this up with nice our f- not to be a aspiring spec writer and have all the <laughs> A-list talent where you can do whatever the hell you want. Exactly. Uh, I got some great stories about next week. Just stuff Matt Damon and Downey Jr. have said. Like, we're going to have some fun next week. Nice. Uh, Let's wrap this up with our flight question. (laughs) We lay in each other's arms But the room is just an empty space Guess we lived it out Something in the air 
They smile too fast, they can't think of a thing to say. I feel like every film of that like particular era kind of like ended with like a song like that, American Psycho and Fight Club, and that's a pretty good Bowie song, actually. It fits the film well. We've probably done this before in some manner. Okay. This question I'm about to give you for the flight. But after nearly five years and well over 200 episodes, I think on occasion, you caught me last week, I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. So this week, maybe you maybe didn't catch me this week. I don't know if we've done this exact, but it's been in this space. You know what? If that person is like, I remember an episode 32, that son of a bitch has to say, I apologize to that person right now, but today it's going to Well, gonna well you know what? Fly. What do we say all the time? We always say like, it's, this is the, these are the answers today. They change, right? Well, funny you say that because the li- I was about to tell you the list I would have had when I was in my mid twenties is mm-hmm. far different than the list I have. Doubled that now, and I think that's the importance of re- doubled that. Do you hear that? Doubled that, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, uh, I think that's the importance of rewatches. I think some things later in life probably play better for you than they did prior, and so I think it's. Well, you know who's part of that? Yeah. You're part of that. Yeah, there's shit that I didn't like the first time mm-hmm. that I've gone back and rewatched and be like, you know what? And you know what? The number one on that list is yeah. I didn't like that movie. And I'm pointing to his poster of The Thing right now. Yeah. Like, I liked it, but I didn't love it. I love that film now. And we haven't even done it on the podcast yet. I know. Yeah. I don't know if you'll win me over on Blade Runner, but yeah. Like, I don't know until we do it, right? Yeah. We we uh, look at things through a different lens. You do, this, you do the same for me, too, though. Uh, like, in, 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 in some instances where I was just like, ah, like... Like the John Wick stuff, like when, when that when we kind of tackled that whole trilogy, I was just like, ah, it just kind of feels like another action thing. But then the more I go to it and like study it and hear you talk about it, and it's just like, this is a really well-developed world. And I think you and I have a pretty interesting conversation on the phone this week about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, yeah. which I liked. Yeah. Uh, I didn't like that I found out that it cost $300 million to make, which Damn. why are we doing that, people? I know, I know. But what was my takeaway from you? It was like, I like the movie, but I didn't think it reached the heights of John Wick chapter four yep. and what that's become and what that was. It's my top film of the year, Matt. Oh. It's better. It's, it's that Spider-Verse. Infinity Pool? Oh, dude, yeah. Wait till you see Infinity Pool. No. But no, Wick chapter four, number one. And I, a lot of that's due to you. You've really kind of brought me around on that franchise. Okay, so before I get the flight question, we need to do this now then. And that's, we used to do like around the 30th, 31st of each year, whether it was um, a shot or a, a small episode, like mm-hmm. year-end review, we need to get back to that. Yeah. And like biggest disappointment, greatest perform. We need to do, if it's with our Oscar short, we need to get back to doing that. Yeah, because I, th- I think we have a lot to... We've missed that for a couple of years. Yeah, reflect on in the year. Some of it's COVID and there wasn't a lot to celebrate, but anyway, <laughs> we're, uh, not, we're not that... Now we're just in a writers and actor strike. So yeah, yeah, we're in a different space. No, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. All right, so coming in December, but now for the flight tonight. Since 2000, top three, I would say film noir, but that's about as dead as it comes. So if you can find it, film noir, but neo-noirs. Um, three, three, two, two, one, one. Real simple. Uh, inspired by Memento. This, and by the way, this would be on my list, but per I rules, they can't make, the, can't make the list. This might be number one on my list, to Me be too, yeah. honest with you. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, this boiled down to a list of... Oh, three choices <laughs> no no of no of just like films that like i'm like oh my god i know matt doesn't like this movie and oh. this movie <laughs> i'll give you one honorable mention that didn't make the, the top three it was uh nightcrawler 
which I think is a pretty interesting complex film. And I think it, that fill, fills a lot of noir gaps, right? Lou Bloom, this kind of guy, Rene Russo is a femme fatale. And just like that whole world, that seedy New York paparazzi underbelly, I think is very fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but I know you like, it wasn't like, you were just like, yeah, it was okay. <laughs> It'd be fun to do on the show. Oh, it would be a lot of fun. Have you ever seen it more than the one time? I've only seen it. I've once. seen it a couple times. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, you go, you go first this time. You, I went first last time. Three for me. Mm-hmm. One we've actually done on the show before. Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Excellent. Yeah, that's stretching it a little bit with traditional film noir because I guess you could say that uh, Marissa Tomei is the femme fatale, but that's a bit of a reach. So we're going with neo-noir and it qualifies. So that's three for me. If you don't know why, go back and listen to that episode. It's an amazing film. And if you haven't seen that film, go right now and watch that film. Yeah. Number three for me. Buckle up. This it's just interesting. It was just but I, I love this film and I'm about to explain why. And maybe we'll do it one day. I think it'd be a good conversation, especially because we met some of the people that worked at this mm. studio. Edge Drive. Yeah. Uh Ryan Gosling, Carrie Mulligan, Brian Cranston, Albert Brooks. I think it has a lot of what you look for in a noir, which yeah. is kind of like a interesting protagonist, uh femme fatalish element, but that whole high seedy mob underbelly. And I just dig the tone of that movie. 80s chic, the soundtrack, the look, the vibe. I mean, the, I don't think he, he doesn't even have a name. He's just the driver. The driver. Uh, that feels very noir to me. Bold uh, films. Bold films tried in that space for a little while, didn't mm-hmm. they? Yeah. But that one that, that that one plays really well to me. I watch that one fairly frequently. I'm a big Gosling fan. Uh, there's a lot that I really like in that film, but I, there's there's a lot to also kind of criticize. I mean, dude, Nicholas Winding Ref, dude, William Friedkin be choking me out if he heard I had drive number three on my list. So, <laughs> number two, Sin City, the original. That's pretty traditional. Now, fantastically presented, mm-hmm. spectacularly presented. Obviously, the color palette is a huge selling point in that film. Yeah. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not even a huge Frank Miller fan. I think Frank Miller is so surly. Sometimes it's off putting. I can't believe I said that because the Gen X in me is like, what did you just say? But I just said it, but I love that film. Yeah. I love it. It's beautiful. You I like the it. sequel? Cause the, the sequel arguably had a better cast with like Joseph Gordon Levitt yeah. and Eva green and uh, maybe not as good of a movie, but still fun to watch and like pretty, but no, the, the, the chapters weren't as good. I need to see both of those again. Since it'd be fun to do on the podcast. It would be. I like that. Robert Rodriguez. You know what Robert Rodriguez joined iWatch this week, which, you know, talk about an episode that would be awesome would be the whole Grindhouse experience. But I just did Planet Terror just as a solo. Just a fun little zombie flick, right? Awesome, fun movie. Mm -hmm. Number number two for me. Two for you. Mulholland Drive. Yeah. Uh, I was debating between one and two, but dude, Lynch doing CD Los Angeles lesbianic, you know, crime, love story. There's a lot of gray in that story too, amnesia. There's some amnesia in that one mm-hmm. as well, but it has that Lynchian tone where nothing quite makes sense. I'll never forget the scene with the cowboy conversation that just kind of comes out of nowhere yeah. and adds more confusion to the fire, but I expect that from him. Yeah. I like how that film tests me. Uh, but it, it has that noir vibe of if we're doing it in 2000, what does a noir look like in 2000? It kind of looks like that film, right? Absolutely looks like that film. Yeah, Good choice. Mm-hmm. All right, number one for me. One that I also would think would be really fun to do on this, and we could really build a cask on this, and we've I've tried with one of his films several times. We can't quite find a way to shoehorn in Don John, but it's Brick. 
Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Ryan Johnson. Yeah. Ryan Johnson. Maybe his first large screening feature film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a high school cocaine caper. And it's awesome. High school noir. Yeah, it's a high school noir. And everyone's talking like they're like in a noir. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's terrific. Great movie. Yes. Yeah, so, so over the top trying to be noir. And frankly, even when noir wasn't trying to be noir at its heyday in the mid 40s, it was still trying to be noir. What if the cask is just modern noir and it's Sin City, Brick, and Mulholland Drive? Let's go. It's pretty good. That sounds like a February deal to me. Yeah. Yeah, dead season. May have to be covering a lot of old stuff for a while, my friend, because oh, yeah. we're running out of material rapidly. Yeah, we're going to head into a weird period, right? We are. All right, you're number one. I can't wait. Let's hear this. Yeah, you kind of know it. I mean, you, you you mentioned it a little bit in the flight question oh. or the nightcap question, but I got to pick its inevitable successor. Do Blade Runner 2049 just yeah. knock my socks off in every possible way? And there's days when I'm like, I think that movie's a little bit better than the original. Damn, really? Mm-hmm. I still have never seen it. You got to do it with me. Okay. You know, Denny Villeneuve really take, and do that film like its predecessor was a bomb at the box office, but there's multiple film, uh, femme fatales. The, is he or not an Android with the Gosling character? Harrison Ford's amazing in that Ana de Armas. Jared Leto's very palatable in that movie. If you can believe it. And the look and style, it's just, I think he did really Scott a little bit better in that one, but mm. Neo Noir. Fantastic. That's my number one. It's good. It's, it's one good. of my favorite films of the 2010s. I can't comment because, like I said, I... Yeah, that'd be a good one, yeah. I mean, we could do Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049, and some other science fiction thing. Uh, that'd be a fun cask. We're just building them up right, left yeah. and left, right left, and left. Left and right, right? Left and right, yeah. Uh, alrighty, so, you know, why don't you pour us out some? <laughs> you know, we have Hirsch, you know, this whiskey. You know, look at that. That's hangover and memento, and that that's, thing's almost empty. You put a dent in that tonight, dude. But what do you think of that? What do you what do you think of this 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 bourbon here? Oh, I love this bottle. Uh, like you said, the label is really really beautiful, but the flavor of this is is even better. Um, you find it a little smooth. Like, this kind of feels like a pretty smooth with like a like a little bit of a, like a like like a like a sharp burn to it at the end. I get a lot of this crazy sounds almond in there. Do you get almond like that? You yeah. know how sometimes almond and cherry taste similar. Mm-hmm. I get a little, like a little bit of a medium amount of that there. Some, I always feel, smell smoke in every bourbon that I taste, but <laughs> yeah, it's smooth. This I, is. I definitely mm. taste that almond, but not in an overpowering kind of kind of sweet way, right? Uh, you don't taste pancake batter, <laughs> dude. What the hell, dude? Like <laughs> it's a story I, for another day. I couldn't. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> anyway, you know, you know, we're in the weird. We're in a weird Hollywood period now. We're in this weird stage where like films, like The Flash, is becoming the biggest box office bomb of like the last you know few years. Um, we have this monumental Barbenheimer event happening this weekend. The writers are still on strike for almost two going on three months, months now. Who knows how long that's going to go on? The actors are striking. I mean, it's, just, it's it's crazy town. I want to read something for you here. You know, in the vein of the writer strike, and you and I have dabbled in that space, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to I want to read this. Uh, and just kind of shed the importance of why writing is so important and why uh, a first draft is a first draft and why it's important to do multiple drafts of your story to end up with a cohesive finished product. Okay. Uh, So what I'm going to read, this is from the Star Wars archives on Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope. Okay. 
written by Paul Duncan. This is a Tashin book. This is a fantastic read, by the way. Okay. I am going to read the original opening crawl mm. of what A New Hope was supposed to be. Lucas wrote it in his original uh, screenplay draft called The Star Wars, July 1974. Wow. Dude, buckle up. Okay. Okay, so this is what you would see in yellow, yellow letters. Until the recent Great Rebellion, the Dai Nogas were the most feared warriors in the universe. For 100,000 years, generations of Dai perfected their art as the as their as their personal body as the personal bodyguards of the king they were the chief architects of the invisible of invincible royal space force which expanded the king's power across the galaxy from the celestial equator to the farthest stars now these legendary warriors are all but extinct one by one they have been hunted down and destroyed as enemies of the new galactic kingdom by a ferocious and sinister rival warrior sect the legions of Latau. Mm. <laughs> Dude, what the fuck? Dude, n- none of that made the finished product, right? Galactic Equator. Dude, who's the die? Are those the, the Jedi? Jedi. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, that's wild, isn't it? He went back to that multiple times to flesh out what these characters need to the names, the characters, the the religion, the the sex. Good. Yeah, that was trash. Yeah, that's awful. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. Again, the importance of that was first draft. You got to go back to your material multiple times to really flesh out the material. You might have a seedling of a good idea and a, a, like a through line, but sometimes you need to go back and just like reconfigure, have people read it, show it to Spielberg if you can, uh, yeah. and just have you give some notes because that is just not good. That's undeliverable. No, no wonder no one wanted to make this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's that's trash. Yeah. But we never really said he was a great writer. Yeah. He had some moments where he was a good storyteller and kind of caught lightning in a bottle with a new hope and thank God for that. Well, I think he got it to a place that was, I think, palatable and acceptable. Yeah. Had you ever heard that before? Never. Oh. Yeah, the adventures of Luke Starkiller. It's just it's yeah. just wild shit, right? Yeah. Um, I thought that'd be a little fun there. That's awesome. So, you know, as kind of like we're wrapping up here, you know, we're about to do this whole cast on Mr. Christopher Nolan. When I say his name... What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Inception. Well, let me, let me know. Like, yeah. Okay. The, the, no, I, I'm, that's, I'm not even setting up, but like the, really that's, that's what pops in there. No, I think that's a great example. Bar film. Like when you think of his style, the type of films he makes, like when you think of him, oh. like what, what do you think of as in just totality? Master storyteller. Maybe the best working contemporary storyteller in the business state, including you, Mr. Stephen King. Good. I'll give it to you. Go. Ambition. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> when I see Nolan, you know, I really love that. Like when the first trailer for this film came out, or they, they showed a sneak preview of it before Avatar, The Way of Water. I mean, they just start showing this footage of Killian Murphy climbing this tower. And Matt Damon shows up, and they're kind of doing a little dialogue back and forth, and then you get the title from Christopher Nolan. I mean, like, there's some power there, right? that they can sell a film on his name alone. Yeah. But the ambition of like when he delivers a product and even tenant and go back and listen to that episode. Cause I think that was a wild ride to figure out what was going on and the frustration and the, the fun with all of that, that this guy shoots for the stars with like every project. I since like bone momento for, for, mm-hmm. for that matter, mm-hmm. not going to dumb it down, but like really like give you the most ambitious piece of this story that we can put on the screen and, 
we're going to let see what the audiences th- think of it. I can't think of another director that's really doing that. It does remind me of those early Spielberg days, the days of Jaws, mm-hmm. Raiders, and E.T., yeah. where he's making these high-concept ideas that are like palatable for a film audience, but like... Even no, close encounters. Yeah. Nolan's doing the same thing, but like at a more critical and complex level mm-hmm. where there's a lot more thinking going on. In 2023, four, and so forth, that is so hard to do because I believe audiences are less willing to want to put in the time and the work yeah, that they might have. Everything's 140 characters or 60 seconds on Instagram. And then we're moving on to the mm-hmm. next thing. There's not a lot of appetite for that anymore. So you have to make sure when you have them that you hook them and keep them. There's an art to that. Few people can do it and he's got it down to a science. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said earlier, my favorite working director, I've read a lot of the criticisms. We can talk about those, you know, just, you know, the lack thereof emotion in, in some films. Oh, and Give me a break. And just, you know, some of the things there. But I can't think of anyone doing And he's shooting on film, practical effects. He's just, he's just, he's singing all the things I love, right? Mm-hmm. It's all the things that this man used to do, too. Yeah. That's you, John Carpenter. Used to do, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and doing it for an audience of, like, and I think to speak to something you like, I think you took a lot of, and me too, but I think even you more so. I got a little comfortable in COVID. I was like, oh, that's going to be on HBO Max. I'll just sit on my couch and watch it. But embracing the theatrical experience. I don't think there's a director that's like, you must go see my movie in the theater. It's not the same at home. One day, Jesse, mm-hmm. you're right. One day what we're going to get is we're going to get Nolan paired with Cruz. Yeah. And watch out in a great way. I thought about that when I was watching Mission Impossible. I was like, well, Cruz is already doing insane psychotic mm-hmm. stunts mm-hmm. and likes IMAX already. And Nolan's been embracing IMAX since Dark Knight. I was like, these two got to get together and do do something. If Nolan directed The Mummy, mm-hmm. the dark world is thriving right now. Oh, yeah. It's a fantastic property, right? Yep. Damn no, I, I thought, I was like, those two guys need to work together. I think they have a lot of similar ideals, oh. not uh, not uh, religiously, but uh, professionally. Yeah, they can, I think they could quell that for long enough to make amazing no, no, Of course, anyone can do yeah. it. I, I'm telling a joke. <laughs> no, but you, yeah, right. But like professionally, how they view the, the, the cinematic landscape, they have a lot of similar thinking. They got to make a movie together. I think it would be fantastic. Me too. God, that'd be great. Well, to that. To that. Today on tap, we have Memento, starring Guy Pearce, Carrie Ann Moss, Joe Pantoliano, based on Memento Mori by Jonathan Nolan, and written and directed by Mr. Christopher Nolan. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Memento is property of New Market Films, Summit Entertainment, and Team Todd. And no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. I have to believe in a world outside my own mind. I have to believe that my actions still have meaning, even if I can't remember them. I have to believe that when my eyes are closed, the 
Yeah.